stop bullying and shouting at the lower orders? Never! There's only one way to win a campaign. Shout, shout and shout again! This is Shot and Shield. Listening in Stockholm, Sweden, in Sao Paulo, Brazil, in Dearborn, Michigan, I am your Marquis de Podcast Deluxe, the Colonel of the Colonies, the Grand Duke Scott of the Duchy of Florida. This is the Shot and Shield Supercast, dedicated to colonial 19th century wargaming and history, a podcast meant to be heard while you are painting or working on your amazing projects. And you can refute anything you hear on this podcast uh, by going to Twitter at Shot and Shield, on email at the Shot and Shield Podcast at gmail.com, or on Facebook, the Facebook group Shot and Shield Podcast Wargaming Group. Now, um, before I get into the show, I want to talk a little bit about um, uh, something that happened just recently. So, as you know, you know, I do this supercast uh, once a month, okay? And this this supercast today is coming out a little bit late. I will tell you, I uh, I haven't been feeling like doing the the supercast much as of late. So in 2015, my mom passed away, okay? Um, and when she passed away, one of the things that just before... Um, she, just before she passed, she said, Hey, look, you know, I want you to take my best friend, best friend of Lily, uh, little Bishan, right? It's her best friend in the world. So we did, you know, uh, Sherry and I, and since then, you know, 2015, it's been like caretaking the elderly, you know, and uh, it's funny how pets get into your soul. And the last few years uh, has been tough because anytime I would come home from work, she would need to be right next to me. I've never had that in, in a, in a pet before. And so when I would come home, it would be like, okay, uh, I come home from work, got to sit down. That's the time that she slept. And so, you know, I got a little larger because I would sit all the time. That's a couple years and I'm doing the podcast here. Sometimes it was tougher to do the podcast because she was needy. Um, and absolutely, you know, I'm not begrudging that at all. It's just, that's the the facts. And it would be get, get more and more and more. And so every once in a while I would get an email and the email would say, Scott, you're working on your project for like a, you know, the last three, four years, what's going on? Aren't you going to finish your project? You're just being lazy, you know? And I didn't want to say, well, no, I didn't have much time because my time was dedicated to my mom's best friend. So, uh, you know, as I record today, you know, this is after we had to make the decision, you know, that at 19 years old and the system starting to fail, that Lily had to, uh, you know, cross the Rainbow Bridge and, 
you know, go back to go back to her best friend. So that's uh So that's where my time has been. So this uh I'm doing this podcast because it's I've dedicated to do this. It's going to be a long podcast today, but only a few segments. And because uh, you just got to plow through, you just got to carry on, right? So anyway, so, you know, I just wanted to, to say that right at the, at the beginning as, uh, as the show gets, gets going. And that way, you know, for those of you who have emailed me going, hey, you lazy bum, <laughs> you lazy bum, get, get painting. But sometimes it, it was tough to do that um, because obviously, you know, my mom's wishes, I want to make sure that uh, my mom's wishes were completed fully. And that happened. So, uh, so anyway, so with that said, uh, you know, on today's program, excuse me, I'm going to stop recording for just a second. Okay. All right. So we're good. Uh, Gurinder Singh Mann is going to join me to discuss his newest book, The Rise of the Sikh Soldier, The Sikh Warrior Through the Ages, uh, 1700-1900, from Hellion and Company Publishers. Um, er, We recorded this just earlier today. So when I'm recording this right here, (laughs) we literally just stopped recording uh, just a little bit ago. So you'll hear that uh, interview in its entirety. Gurinder Singh Mann is amazing amazing, uh, not just author, but just amazing person in general. Um, when you hear him talk with passion, when you hear anybody talk with passion about something they love, any subject they love, you know, it's infectious, you know, and Gurinder is, is that, uh, is that guy for me. So he, he, he speaks with passion about uh, the Sikh and I, it's a, it's a very interesting conversation. I hope you get a lot out of it. I know I did. Um, we're also going to have the results of the top five question and closing out the show, uh, a story of Bo Brummel. But first, your emails. Germany calling, London calling, Moscow calling, Washington, D.C. calling, Peking calling, Sydney calling. Message for you, son. It's time to answer some emails from all around the world. I collect myself here. Come on, Scott. Anyway. So I received a couple emails uh, about a particular segment of the show. Uh, so here we go, okay? <laughs> so this uh, email is from Jerry at 979 listening in Chicago. And it reads, uh, uh, Jerry writes, Duke Scott, what does your audio archaeological discovery radio thing have to do with wargaming? I'm not complaining, but after you stop talking wargaming, I tune out. <laughs> Okay, so, you know, this is why I call it a supercast and not a podcast. I mean, it is a podcast, but I call it a supercast um, because a podcast covers one central area of an idea, such as a sports podcast or a music podcast or a podcast on woodworking, all right? And I'm not demeaning any of those. I'm just saying that's, you know, it's very specific, very narrow in its scope. In a supercast... 
my overall idea is that you are actively doing something else while you're listening. In this case, most likely painting your figures or a building or scenery, etc., just like I would be doing, uh, listening to you know podcasts or listening to uh, music or even listening to this show. So I tried to put an audio magazine style show together that has a collection of different things with an overarching theme. And that theme being colonial and 19th century wargaming and history. So everything presented to you will have some sort of connection with that arc. So I choose radio plays that have a connection or a loose connection with the time period. So if I could find something that has that time period, that's what I'm going to present. I'm not just going to say, okay, well, here's a, you know, in, in, in uh, radio plays, for instance, there's a bunch of sci-fi radio plays that are really, really good, you know, but I'm not going to sit there and say, okay, you know, we've just talked about, you know, in this case, we've just talked about the Sikhs with Gurinder Singh Man. I'm not going to say, hey, look, guess what? Here is Danger Man, Danger X, and you're flying to Mars. It just doesn't, it doesn't work like that. So it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Um, so today, uh, the radio play is about, bro, about Bo Brummel. And it's a great play. And I think it's something you'll enjoy, especially if you're a fan of the 19th century, like I am. So, uh, Jerry, I, I do appreciate where you're coming from. There are shows that talk nothing but war gaming. And I would, I would encourage you to check those out because, I'm, you know, they're, they're good shows. Um, but uh, this, uh, this is a supercast, so I, I do a magazine-style type of uh, show. Let's see, this uh, email comes from Double R Ranch, listening in Wyoming. Scott, I love listening to the end of each of your shows for the radio play. <laughs> uh, counterpoint, right? Uh, last episode's Hemingway play was great, and I, I like listening to your other channel, even though you haven't updated it in a while. You seem to have a skill in presenting the radio play that makes me want to listen. How did you learn this? I love the show and can't wait to hear. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I love the show and can't wait to see your Central Asian Russian campaign completed. Uh, I've been looking forward to it. Um, thank you. I've been looking forward to it too. <laughs> uh, okay. So uh, first, yes, uh, I have not updated Vintage Radio Adventures uh, podcast uh, recently. And now that I have, uh, I find I have some more time than I plan to do that. So hopefully uh, I'll be doing that uh, fairly uh, fairly soon. If, if you, if you like not off, off the subject of colonial and 19th century history, I'm going to say this. Okay. If you like Conan, the barbarian, there's a couple of great radio plays, radio adaptions to listen to on uh, vintage radio adventures, the podcast. So feel free to, to jump in there. Uh, secondly, uh, thank you for the love regarding the skill. It's not really a skill. I don't think it's a skill. It's more like theft. <laughs> Uh, so, okay. So, okay. I'll tell the story. All right. When I was, when I was growing up, I used to watch, I'm, did I say, did I, did I, pres did I talk about this once before? I may, I may have already talked about this once before, but, and if I have, I apologize if I'm repeating myself. When I was growing up in Miami on channel 33, it was an independent radio, uh, independent TV station, excuse me, independent TV station. And 
there was a guy in the overnight, his name was Big Wilson. And he would present, he would do three, uh, three movies and he would present each one and he have his little, <laughs> he had this, uh, this piano and he'd be like, da 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 Okay, so here coming up, we have Humphrey Bogart in blah, blah, blah. And then they pan to this, uh, this owl. And it was called Night Owl Movies with Big Wilson. Loved it. So anytime my mom just wanted to play hooky from work, she would call out work and then she would, she would have my brother and I stay home from school. And then we would stay up all night watching... Big Wilson present these uh, these movies. And it was it was amazing. It was lots of fun. This is probably where my uh, probably where my introduction to movies came from was Big Wilson. So uh, it's not skill. Uh, it's not skill. It's total theft. I uh, present myself as the Big Wilson of wargaming. So there you go. Uh, this next uh, this next email is from Timothy. Listening in the Philippines. And uh, he writes, Scott, I'm happy to have a show like yours to listen to. I am waiting to hear the results of the top five question about who got me into wargaming. For myself, it was my grandfather. He fought in World War II, and although he would never talk about his combat days, he would always grab a map and show me the tactics the generals used to take over the Philippines. He would break out my green army men and use them to represent regiments and how they would flank the enemy. As I read more history while growing up, him and I would talk about tactics from other wars like the Spanish-American War. Finally, he bought me several model kits of the Olympia and we built them together. I miss him. Thank you for the question. It brought back great memories. <sighs> um, can I tell you something? Uh, look, yeah, I could do a full show of reading emails like this. It's funny how thankful we are for those who have shown us this pastime, you know? I mean, I, I think I've, I've said many times uh, about um, the gentleman who introduced me to wargaming. His name was Steve Barona. And I remember walking in with my, my dad and my brother into a hobby shop in Margate, Florida. And there he was with a buddy of his, and they were playing a Civil War game. And I ended up becoming really good friends with him. Um, and then we just lost touch. So... Um, yeah, you know what, Timothy, uh, that's, that's a great story right there. You know, it really is. And I thank you. Thank you so much for sharing it. Um, I will have the results of the uh, the top five um, uh, a little bit later in the uh, program today. Um, in the meantime, <laughs> I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end the emails there. What an emotion. This is for, I don't know what it is. I think for me, this is like an emotional uh, this is an emotional. Uh, a supercast uh, uh, this episode. So I'm going to apologize a little bit, I guess. Um, but uh, anyway, let me take a break. Coming up, Gurinder Singh Man is going to uh, join me, and we're going to talk about the Sikh soldier. That's next on Shot. <laughs> 
This is Shot and Shield. Good luck against those elephants. From the land of the audio to the world of the visual, the Shot and Shield podcast is on YouTube. I use YouTube for supplementary information, such as watch-along videos, documentaries of interest, movies that I find that uh, best represent colonial or 19th century inspirations or gaming, and eventually video from interviews that I've uh, already done and that you've heard on the podcast. Just search out, in parentheses, Shot and Shield. You got to put the parentheses in there, parentheses, Shot and Shield, and parentheses, and you'll find it on the YouTube. There's also a link on the podcast info page. So check it out and subscribe to Shot and Shield on YouTube. Hey, what the blaze is this? A podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. All right, Marines. Nice punch. This is Shot and Shield. And shield. In this episode of Shot and Shield, I am joined once again by Gurinder Singh Mann, the leading Sikh historian, director of the Sikh Museum Initiative, and author makes a triumphant return with his new tome, The Rise of the Sikh Soldier, The Sikh Warrior Through the Ages, circa 1700 to 1900. Uh, Miniature War Games magazine called it an excellent one-volume guide to the military culture of the Sikhs. And I know from the last time, uh, we sat down, had a conversation, many, many, many emails saying, why didn't, why didn't, uh, the, the duchy of Scott, why didn't he just, the, the Duke Scott, why didn't he go and ask this question or ask that question or ask this question and get deeper into that. And so, uh, I f- was finally able to, you know, convince Garinder <laughs> to come back on. <laughs> uh now, in this episode, our great friend, Grinder, uh, is going to school me on the Sikh soldier. Uh, Grinder, c- congratulations on the book and your success, and world traveler as well. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you very much uh, for having me again on the show. And, yo, I really enjoyed being on the show last time. It was a real great uh, pleasure to be on your show. So, Scott, absolutely fantastic what you're doing with the podcast at the moment. Thank and you. Yeah, uh, really happy to be kind of sharing the information in relation to Sikh history in relation from this Rise of the Sikh Soldier book as well. Yeah. The um, some of the questions that I have uh, I received uh, from the last time uh, we spoke uh, were really delving into the the idea of the Sikh soldier. Uh, the last time you were on, we discussed the previous their previous book, the British and the Sikhs: Discovery, Warfare, Friendship. Uh, 1700, 1900, and you alluded uh, you alluded to the importance of uh, I'm going to go with one individual because I just want to get into it. Yeah, um, because I did get a lot of feedback. Uh, one individual, Guru Gobind Singh, if I pronounce that correctly. Correct. Yeah. Um, can you expand on his importance? Okay. In uh, the rise of a Sikh soldier. Well, okay, so. Um... The whole idea behind the Sikhs was that um, it was it grew as a faith, which essentially was very spiritual in its infancy. 
So we have what we call the 10 gurus, as in the inner living form, if we can say that word. And it starts off with Guru Nanak. Um, whilst the earlier gurus in their tenure were very kind of, uh, use the word in inverted commas, passive in terms of they did not wear the military uh, attire, they did not adorn the sword. They were still against, you know, um, hypocrisy. They were against rituals. They were against all these things which made India what it was at the time. So Guru Nanak, as being a revolutionary, was actually all about changing the mindset of people and viewing God in a different light. What we have is this sea change by the time we get to the fifth guru, who's actually martyred, and then whose name was Guru Arjan Dev. And so what happens is, during that time of the fifth guru, he's actually kind of always keeping a small army with him at this time. And he's kind of educating his followers that we're going to hit a zenith or a crux whereby the Sikhs are going to have to be going head to head with the Mughal authority. Whilst the Sikhs as a group were very, very small in their numbers, by the time we get to the sixth guru, whose name was Guru, Hargobind, he then dons two swords on his investiture to actually say we will now become martial in our outlook. So the terms which we use as Sikhs are Sant Sabai, Punjabi terms, which essentially mean a saint soldier. So you've got the saintly side and you've got the soldiery side. So you're kind of combining both of those. It's not just the soldiery side without the spiritual, that they both go are in, intertwined in that sense. So that's why the Sikhs have this du duality in terms of ensuring that um, the scriptures are read before going into battle, as, as was the case at that particular time and, you know, during the time of their campaigns. So when we get to the 10th incarnation, we have a great individual or guru by the name of Guru Gobind Singh. So what he does is he actually kind of transforms the Sikhs, essentially. Whilst I've just stated they were becoming martial from the sixth incarnation, but when we get to the tenth, Guru Gobind Singh, after witnessing the martyrdom of his father, whose name was Guru Teg Bahadur, the word Teg Bahadur means valiant in battle, okay? The valiant in battle with the sword. Mm -hmm. So you've got these martial names even to the gurus, if that makes sense. So... Guru Tegh Bahadur was beheaded by the um, Mughal government and the Emperor Aurangzeb. So what Guru Gobind Singh does, he's only a child at this time, he's actually thinking forward and thinking, okay, well, the reason why no one came to the aid of my father was because they, the Sikhs were nondescript. So I'm actually going to give them an attire. I'm going to make them wear the turban. I'm going to make them carry weapons. I'm going to make sure that from now on, the Sikhs can be identified in a martial form. So what he does is he actually creates a new style of, and we don't really use the word baptism, but a rebirth. So essentially on, in 1699, 1669, what he does is he actually creates the order of the Khalsa, where initiates, adorn the turban they wear what we call the five k's they wear where they wear the sword and they actually drink this nectar which is stirred in a cauldron with a, with a sword it sounds very very mystical but essentially the Sikhs of old are now reborn into what we call the fraternity of the Khalsa 
and hence is born this concept of saint soldier the Khalsa Sikh warriors are now actually kind of seen in a different way it wasn't for everybody because the people who still had that passive nature did not under some of some people did not understand what Guru Gobind Singh was trying to do they were mm -hmm. like okay well we're we're the sons and daughters of Guru Nanak if that makes sense and, and that came from a spiritual line and right. now we're expected to become martial but the times were needed for this rebirth to happen because the persecution by the Mughals was at its zenith so and hence why we have Guru Gobind Singh creating this order that we now know as the Khalsa. Is this one of the reasons why um, the, I'm not going to call it, I'm going I'm to use the word myth. It's probably not the, the correct term, but I'm going to use the word yeah. myth. The myth that the, uh, that the Sikh soldier is, will fight to the death. If you're, if you have the, you have the saint and you have the faith mm. and you have the soldier part, well, you already have made, you've already come to terms with where, where you're going you know, after life. So in, th in this case, it would seem like the, the Sikh soldier, although I'm not going to, I'm not going to suggest that they want to die, but mm. they've accepted that death is part of life. And so it makes them tougher, let's say. Yeah. So, I mean, the whole idea was that when he creates his Khalsa, Mm -hmm. Guru Singh is actually telling people to turn up, uh, have this initiation, but with a view that you're fighting for the cause of your fellow Sikhs. And we talk about this concept of Shaheed. Now, you probably hear this term terminology being used by Muslims, for instance. So you hear the word Shaheed, but the Sikhs used it as well. So, she, so the word Shaheed just means being a martyr, martyrdom. So the embracement of martyrdom, like I said, started during the time of um, Guru um, Guru Hargobind, the sixth incarnation. But during this tenth, you know, under Guru Gobind Singh, it now started becoming a bit more prevalent in terms of individuals sticking their neck out, literally in terms of embracing the faith. When we get to the 18th century, I'm sure you'll ask me some questions about that. What we do get to is this idea where it's openly kind of said, we will become Shaheed, we will become martyrs. We even have the name of a missile, which we can discuss in a, in a few moments, is a brigade of warriors called the Shahidi missile, the brigade of martyrs. So that even the concept um, becomes more paramount from the 1700 onwards, essentially. Oh, the book uh, is called uh, The Rise of the Sikh soldier the war uh, the sikh warrior through the ages 1700 1900 you can find it on hellion uh, and company press uh as well as uh, any bookseller that uh is of worth is going to carry this book um and you can get that at the hellion and uh, company website uh the the other th so the concept of the book altogether can you explain can you talk a little bit more about that I think for me, it was always the case that um, we have a lot of books, essentially, um, in Sikh history, uh, which are traditionally kind of you either, either pigeonhole the Sikhs in terms of them being in World War One or World War Two or being part of a colonial system. You have the Sikhs um, as part of uh, 
um, the Anglo Sikh wars are really tough battles against the East India companies. You have the Sikhs during the period of Ranjit Singh, the great king of the Sikhs from the 1800 period. You don't have many books from the 18th century talking about the missile period. So I wanted a continuous lineage from the time of the gurus to Guru Gobind Singh, talking about some of the individuals which are so predominant during the missile period, the whole military system being changed during the time of Rajiv Singh, and then how the Sikhs kind of coped and were absorbed during the East India Company and the British Raj as well. So it's a literally, it's an A to Z, but in a in a in a concise fashion, sure. essentially. Yeah. So now, covering all those periods essentially. Was there any individual uh, that stood out, uh, maybe almost a head, head and shoulders above the rest, in, in your in your research and your in your in your book? I, I think that's a very loaded question because I think we have to go period by period, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. So, what I've done in the missile period, I've identified uh, four individuals. First one was someone called Jassa Singh Alawalia, who was considered to be the head of the Sikhs and he led the Sikhs for 40 years. So what he does is he actually divides the Sikhs into two groups, the Buddhadal, the veterans, the older guard of the Sikhs, and the Bhagnadal, the early adopters, the young swimmers, and into these two into these two units essentially, the older guard and the younger guard. So what the Sikhs are doing in the 18th century are they're fighting uh, on two fronts, essentially, they're fighting against the Afghans coming in through, you know, Peshawar and Atuk and then entering the Punjab. And then you've got the Sikhs who are fighting against the Mughal authority as well. So I, I don't know if it's ever heard of to be for such a small group of people to be fighting on two fronts then eventually becoming, you know, on top. Essentially. Right. So, yeah, it's it's that conviction which was led by Justice Singh Alwalia. Um, but secondary to that, there's a second individual who I mentioned in a chapter is by the name of Jarat Singh Sukhachakya. And the reason for quoting him throughout the book is because he was the actual grandfather of Ranjit Singh, who then be- led to become, you know, the, like I said, the emperor of the Sikhs. And so I wanted to actually show a lineage between Jarrett Singh and Ranjit Singh as well. But it gets better because generally we've got this martial tradition, which uh, we generally look at always in terms of male individuals. So I wanted to cite two female leaders as well within the book. And one of them was named uh, and she's a princess of a place from Patiala, and her name was Sahib Kaur. So she was actually part of uh, the Kanaya Federacy. She was actually married into the Kanaya Federacy or, or Missal, but she actually was then recalled by the Patiala government to become the prime minister. And when she's there, she her male counterpart or um, brother, whose name was Sahib Singh, is very weak. So she is actually the kind of military leader, in a sense, in this confederacy. And she actually fights against the Marathas as well. She gets other missile leaders to be actually part of her little kind of campaign because the Marathas would come from, you know, the south and they would then go past Delhi and then they would ask for tribute around what we call the cis sutlage areas where Patiala was based. So what she does is she's actually a very young individual, but she was able to muster these forces. So I go into depth about that. But one of the key factors 
and key stories of Sarah Gore is she actually comes into uh, combat with a British individual by the name of George Thomas. He's called the Raja of Tipperary, and he's actually technically fought with the Marathas, gained his experience, was not part of the East India Company, but then creates a little town of his own, which um, is in the place called, um, uh, uh, well, they named it Georgetown, essentially, because named after him, essentially, uh, and George Gar, which means Georgetown, and it's in a place called Hansar and Hissi, and Hissar, basically, and some big, massive fort where he was able to actually, you know, create artillery, and he was saying, well, I can go into the Punjab anytime and I can take over the Punjab. Everyone laughed at him, everyone was scoffing at him. And then he tried his handle in terms of trying to subjugate Patiala, but he was eventually defeated. I mean, it took a bit of time. But the key part of this story is, it's a lady fighting this Britisher, which we normally don't hear about these kind of uh, stories. And right. Because normally, fought, normally mm. we would hear about uh, a wife, a nurse, a queen, mm. And yes. in, in, in history, so that would be the it would almost be like women are relegated to one of those type of, yeah you know, uh, I'll say careers. Mm. <laughs> you yeah. know, you don't hear very many um, mm. who actually are, you know, picking up uh, the weapon and, and getting yeah. into the nitty gritty of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this story is actually needs to delving a bit more as well. Whilst I cover it in the book, um, in a future publication, I'll be going into depth in terms of what that story entails. But essentially, it's that showing that uh, within the Sikh fraternity, there was women leaders as well. And the second individual which I cite is someone called Sada Kaur. Now, who she is, she's also part of this confederacy called the Kanaya Federacy, essentially. And what she does is that um, once her husband dies, and then eventually there's no other leaders, she's been given this mantle of being the head of the Kanaya Federacy. And what she does is she actually kind of forms an alliance with Ranjit Singh of the Sukhachakya missile. And what she does, she guides him essentially to become what we call the de facto leader of the Sikhs in the 1800 period. So she actually lends her army to Ranjit Singh when he's attacking Lahore, when he's attacking Amritsar. So what eventually happens is people have always kind of either neglected her or said, she was the ladder in which Ranjit Singh would eventually become the Maharaja. So her story was very, very pivotal in terms of actually understanding the, the dynamics of warfare, but also the rise of Ranjit Singh, which would never have happened without Sadakor. Um, eventually, she was estranged from Ranjit Singh, and eventually, you know, um, she was kind of pensioned off in a sense. So, but Ranjit Singh was very, very ruthless. You know, he had, had very many married partners. He he was dominating and he wanted to create this well field of expansion. And, you know, and she was one of those kind of casualties whilst leading and helping him towards this prize. Eventually, when he didn't need her, he, he, he was she was kind of, you know, kind of um, collateral damage. Off. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So is, this may be sound like a very ignorant question. And I apologize. But how, so how does one become a leader in the Sikh military? Okay. Or, so, you know, in the well, missile that, that is. Okay, yeah. So the missiles, <laughs> in its early phase, it was really simply, 
if you have a horse, if you have a sword, you would, it was literally simple as that. Right. If you had a band of 10 people, you would go up to, all right, let's talk about one of the, one or two of the early leaders. So the early leaders in the 18th century was someone called Nawab Kapoor Singh. So he actually was the early leader of the Sikhs, um, which then led on to Jassa Singh Alawalia. So what we have is people coming up to him and saying, look, um, I want to fight for the Sikh cause. And he says, OK, well, this is what I can give you. This is what you need to do. And let's just take it from there. But then as the missiles start getting bigger and bigger, when the, there is money in the pot, so to speak, right. then they can give and you know they can actually pay these individuals for actually having a horse and a sword as well. But remember, there's two ways of looking at it. You're either fighting for your faith and you're not expecting a return, return right. as in income or not mm -hmm. returning at all from the battle, right. or you view it as I'm doing this for pay. Now, whilst the missile system will got bigger and bigger and bigger that's when you get the monetary rewards in terms of how things but remember at that time it was a share of the spoils if that makes sense so if you raided right. a the afghan uh baggage train for instance you know you you know that would be actually kind of spread amongst the missile individuals who fought at that time and so forth and so forth it, it may sound very primitive at the time but it was a way of keeping people happy getting people employed into the missiles as well but yeah, it was always the faith for the gurus and, you know, by actually becoming as part of the fraternity of the Khalsa, it was one of those things which uh, kind of led them to becoming, you know, a, a very formidable kind of um, in bunch, bunch of individuals at that time, essentially. Uh, I'd like to recap a little bit about the missile itself. So the missile um, is separated into two, two facets. One is your, your older and uh, the the other one is the younger. Now, the older, uh, I think we discussed that uh, in, our, in the last episode uh, where you joined me, where that uh, the older ones, these are the veterans. These yeah. are the thinkers. These are the smart guys. These are the guys who have the experience. Yeah. You know, they're going to they're going to they're going to battle, but they're going to battle in a very smart way where the younger the younger side is where the courage is, the full hardiness is. Absolutely. And th these, these are the guys that's like, oh, oh you need that bridge? Mm. I got it. And it just it go in, in a crush way. And so is that, that's not to, not to dumb it down or, or no. make it seem, no. you know, less, less than, but to, in a, in a nutshell, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about these missiles. Absolutely. And you're, you're quite spot on. Now, don't get me wrong. There would have been older leaders within the uh, the, the Tarnadal, the, the, you know, the, the, the younger missiles as well. But the leaders themselves, mm -hmm. they were, like you said, I mean, the Tarnadal is really interesting because they were more daring, if that makes sense. So we had the Bungie missile named after a hemp plant, for instance. Bungie means, you know, cannabis named after a, a hemp plant. So the leaders were, it was so courageous. They could just. Well, and it was for medicinal purposes only. Well, it's interesting, actually, because, well, yes, it, it, it was actually, but it did give them that kind of uh, kind of encouragement in terms of actually going out there. But, right, you know, right. Yeah. So, but, um, yeah, so the, so we mentioned about the Sokajukia missile. They fought these hard battles against the Afghans. You know, they were like day after day, week after week. They were out there on their own. There could have been only 50 of them, could be 10 of them, but they stuck out in the middle of nowhere to fight against the Afghans. So they were a bit more daring if that makes sense. The Buddha Dal, the older veterans were more strategic, like I said, holding Amritsar, 
and you're going for other campaigns, uh, 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 you know, uh, against the Mughal emperor, for instance. So they were like very strategic in ensuring that um, that there was a lot of kind of forward planning going on as well. But they were always on top of each other as well, and that led to conflict within themselves as well. Because if you've got territories which are touching upon each other, then you know you're gonna get that kind of um, that friction which occurred and it did happen as well it happened as much it happened in common as much as it happened against um the you know the deadly foe against the Sikhs as well essentially so could could you see or, or would this have happened would you have had someone in the uh in in the missile a soldier inside the missile rise through the missile into that head leadership position yes that's a really interesting um point actually so let me give you the example of um the gloria singer missile okay gloria singer missile so named after an individual called gurura singh okay whilst the actual missile was uh, um started by someone called sham singh but the actual missile name was named after an individual called gurura singh now one of his he was probably not even a deputy at the time, but he rose through the ranks and eventually an individual called Bagheel Singh would then take over the mantle of the missile. And yet Bagheel Singh's actual achievements surpass Rora Singh, just as in influenced as Sham Singh as well as part of that missile. But Bagheel Singh was the individual who dominated Delhi. He dominated all the way from the Sisutland states all the way up to um, the British territories, in fact, you know, going all the way to a place called Awad. And this was the difference whereby, you know, whilst he was part of the, he was Buddha Dal as well, the Korea Singham missile was the Buddha Dal, but these individuals who eventually just go up the ranks and become these leaders were even better leaders than the leaders that came before them, which was actually really, really kind of a positive message to show that, yes, you can branch off, you can be part of, say, a missile with 200 soldiers or 500 soldiers or even a couple of thousand soldiers, right. but you're still under a, jur a jurisdiction where possible. So I, I, I received a lot of response from the last conversation. The underlying critique was I didn't ask you more about uh, the individuals that were involved in in creating the Sikh empire as, as an empire, not necessarily as... Um, as the missiles or the or the confederacy but actually the empire itself can can you touch on that yeah i mean what i wanted to do this time around was to again very very similar i'm glad you asked the question because the question which your uh, listeners and you know followers are asking is exactly what i was trying to do with the rise of the seat soldier to actually uh, refer to certain individuals which i thought were very pivotal to this empire building by what Maharaj Ranjit Singh was trying to do. So essentially what Maharaj Ranjit Singh is doing is he's actually kind of creating a big, big state essentially. And he's trying to, he's absorbed some of the missiles already and then he's into his kind of empire. But then at the same time, he's actually promoting individuals to become great senior leaders and generals as well. So two individuals that I've actually cited within the book is Hari Singh Nalwa. And he's considered to be a commander in chief of the Sikhs. Uh, well, at least towards the areas of Bashawa, 
in terms of Gujarat, in terms of all these areas which are what we consider modern day Pakistan now. And he took the fight to the Afghans as well. So he's not only just a courtier, but he's also a governor. He's actually kind of stamping down hard on insurrections. He's stamping down really hard in terms of how when the Afghans were coming, it's effectively Hari Singh Nawa closed down the borders of um, of Punjab, basically. So whereas the hordes of invaders from day one, whether it be going back from Alexander the Great's time, you know, to everyone else, we're talking about the 18th century in terms of Nadir Shah, who came and ransacked India. We talk about Ahmed Shah of Delhi, who fought with the Sikhs. For the first time under Harrison Nalwa, he closes off these borders which essentially means no one's crossing over without a fight against the sea. So I think that was a great way of actually, um, for me to actually show the kind of nature of Harry Singhalwa, what his military credentials was and how he actually formed as part of the, the greater widening Sikh army. The second individual who I cite is a name of Akali Fula Singh. So Akali means, uh, you know, someone who's actually in tune with the timeless timeless is referring to god for instance and he was a nihang so just to actually kind of demonstrate so in the 18th century we talked about these martyrs the brigade of martyrs essentially mm-hmm. and these shaheeds as we call them so akalifura singh came from this kind of school where he was wearing the tall turban whites on his turban armed to the teeth in terms of a gun a chakram a you know a you know these so-called knuckle dusters bagnaki we call it um just a one-man walking army but he was the leader of these individuals so but he was also a spiritual head as well going back to what we discussed right at the start you know the, the saints and the soldiers as well so he could actually bring people into the fraternity in amritsar and he could actually get people to become part of the khalsa but as a military leader he was anti-Western. So he hated the East India Company. He hated mm-hmm. them, you know, rock, rock, bolt and solid, basically. So he would actually want to, he would want to go out and actually fight the British, essentially. He was like, right. we don't, and he termed them the Ferengi. So in Punjab, the word Ferengi essentially means foreigner. Um, but, and, you know, even some of the uh, generals who fought within the Sikh Empire, they're referred to as Ferengis. But Specifically with the East India Company, one event kind of marks how much power Akali Fula Singh actually wielded. So essentially, there's an individual by the name of Captain White of the East India Company who's surveying an area of Nabba. Now, in 1809, the Punjab had been split in terms of what the East India Company um, kind of administered in the Punjab. And effectively, it was under in an area called Nabba, which is effectively under the control of the British. And what uh, Akali Fula Singh does, he attacks Captain White's camp, slaughters many of them, and that's it. Captain White is, is, is almost left for dead, but he kind of gets out of there and then he's given safe haven. So the East India Company, you know, the governor generals want revenge and they say, they ask Ranjit Singh and say, well, okay, you need to hand him over to us. First, they ask the Sisutlid states, they ask the person in Naba, well, you know, you're going to have to capture him. So they kind of go to this place where he's kind of held up. No one's willing to do anything because he's seen as a spiritual head as well. So it's different if you're just a military head, but he's a spiritual mm-hmm. head as well. He's considered a guru. We don't refer to him as a guru, but he's seen as one because he holds and wields that power. 
So, so was he really quick? I'm sorry. Was he considered somewhat of a rogue? Well, by the British, he was. But interestingly, right. but interestingly, uh, Maharaja Ranjit Singh could not actually handle him either, because right. um, as his power in Amritsar. So just to briefly kind of explain. So in Amritsar, we have a main Sikh shrine referred to as the Hari Mandar which effectively, if people around the world refer to as the Golden Temple. So that's seen as a spiritual shrine. But in the 18th century, um, you know, under the missiles, they created, um, well, it's created a lot earlier, but um, more of the kind of general discussions uh, what took place at what we called the Akal Takht, which is the throne of the timeless. So essentially, the missile leaders and then eventually Kalifullah Singh is head of this throne, essentially, which means he has sovereignty in himself. So he does not have to kind of actually be bowing down to Maharaj Ranjit Singh. It's the other way around. So effectively, he can do what he likes. So when people are trying to arrest him, it's almost like saying, well, we can't do anything here. It's, right. it's, you know, it's above our pay grade to even to go near him. So. The British are getting frustrated. They petition all these uh, people in the Punjab. They petition Maharaja Ranjit Singh. He can't do anything. And the idea was that um, any time the British came into Sikh territory under the jurisdiction of Maharaja Ranjit Singh, then what used to tend to happen was that um, the Akalis were kind of kept away from the British because they knew there could be a standoff and it would be kind of embarrassing for Maharaja Ranjit Singh. So Akali Fula Singh was like, you know, heralded as a great warrior and in the campaigns that Maharaj Ranjit Singh had the hardest and harshest campaigns Akali Fula Singh was always there at the always there at the at the front essentially so mm -hmm. it was just like you know these kind of warriors which were always and even to this day whilst the Nahangs do exist as a group but they don't hold a political kind of um uh, what's the word? Uh, they're not on a very high level in terms of political leadership, but in terms of the spiritual leadership, the Nahangs today, um, you know, taking their cue from people like Akali Fula Singh are very, very kind of considered to be very um, up there in terms of rever reverence, essentially. And they still hold those traditions as well, which uh, people like Akali Fula Singh was trying to promote in at the time of the early 1800s. But Quite rightly, the British were calling him a rogue, a rascal, a mm -hmm. robber. You hear all these terms being banded around. But for the Sikhs, he was considered like one of those individuals, steadfast, held up morals, was kind of like the gatekeeper. And that's why, again, like I said, he was very pivotal to the Sikh army during the rise of Ranjit Singh's empire, essentially. So what, what ended up happening to him? Like, where, where did he go in his life? Right. So essentially what happened was he'd actually... Well, at that particular time, the British couldn't do anything. There was further battles which Akali Fula Singh fought, and eventually um, he was killed within battle as well. Mm. And uh, so, you know, that's 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 what the Nahang way of life was—to actually be going all the way and only and 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 dying a martyr's death, essentially. So that's exactly what he did. So, and that was why he was always revered. And even on the day when he was martyred, Maharaja Ranjit Singh even shed a tear as well because he knew that this was one of a pivotal individual who had actually led some campaigns right from the front, essentially. And help and help build the foundation to the Sikh absolutely. Empire. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, the uh, the Sikh soldier, um, 
would death be preferable in battle rather than um, dying of old age? Well, I think it was predominantly more the case in the 18th century uh, during the Missile period. However, it was also prevalent in the Sikh Empire period. But in, during the Sikh Empire period, many Sikhs have become comfortable as well. So then you mm. see this lavishing of people wearing jewellery, you know, gold, and you can see the change taking place. But I think the key part factor in all of this is that if we talk about the Sikh soldiers in the Sikh Commonwealth now as part of the Sikh Empire, we did have Sikhs, we had um, Hindus, we had Muslims fighting for the Sikh Empire against the British during the Anglo-Sikh Wars. And all these individuals were steadfast in terms of actually kind of holding their positions against the British during the Anglo-Sikh Wars. But to answer your question, definitely there would have been individuals who actually would have felt that's it. Um, death is on the lips of of my name. So therefore, I'm going to go into battle. And again, let's talk about individuals. During the Anglo-Sikh Wars, an individual by the name of Sham Singh Adariwala, who fought in the Battle of Sobrawa, he's actually noticing that the Sikhs are actually, you know, on the back foot. But he, he rallies the troops. He actually goes there in battle. He actually, before he even gets to the battlefield, he's actually settled his accounts. He's told the village he's not coming back. So, you know, you've got this kind of mindset. So I'm not right. coming back until I've done my job. He's there in the battlefield. And what you find is that um, the kid's courageousness, his bravery is, you know, also recognized by the British as well. So what happens is he, he's fighting, he loses his life. And then, you know, eventually the Sikhs are given safe passage to take his body away as well. So that was the kind of respect that the British had for this individual called Sham Singh Atariwala. So yeah, it was also prevalent during the later periods of time as well. Now, you talked about the respect that the British had. Was there, was there a reverse? Did, uh, did the Sikh soldier uh, at one time look on the, you know, the British with that type of respect? I think it was it was different. I think what Maharaja Ranjit Singh was trying to do was trying to um, get any military secrets he could do, if that makes sense. So mm -hmm. when the East India Company individuals were coming, the governor generals were coming, other military commanders were coming in, he was question after question after question. He was like, he would not stop questioning them. Even when you had the missionaries coming in, you know, they'd gone in there, or oh, let's see if we can try and convert the Sikhs. But he'd always ask was military matters for people of the clergy. And they were like, oh, you know, we've gone to do this. And all he's asking about is military affairs. So interestingly, there was that exchange of technology as well in terms of gifting. So the Sikhs would give things to the, the British and the British would give, like, let's just say, for example, cannons as well. Mm -hmm. So what the Sikhs did was they improved on these cannons as well. So we have a great individual by the name of Lena Singh, Majithia. So he was considered to be the technologist. Now, I'm sure there were many, but he was like the leader where he was actually kind of great in terms of architectural. He was actually kind of working on astronomy. Mm -hmm. So therefore, he was also pivotal in terms of actually re-engineering many of the cannons that the Sikh Empire had, which were pivotally used within um, the Anglo-Sikh Wars. 
But we have to add a caveat onto that as well. There was the influence of the Europeans as well, which gave um, the Sikhs that military advantage. And we can discuss that in a second. But to go back in terms of the praise, I think Maharaja Ranjit Singh was always looking out for when can I have a conversation with the British? What military mm -hmm. tactics can I learn? I mean, it worked both ways. The reason for the British to go into the Punjab was to see what the tactical advantage that the Sikhs held if ever there was this kind of battle between the two groups. Well, what kind of just quickly? What kind of what kind of improvements would you make to a to a cannon? I mean, it just seems think, like it. Yeah, I, I think what we find is that the British type of cannon probably had you know the weight of the the cannonball, for instance. Mm -hmm. And by the time we get to the Anglo Sikh Wars, you do find that some of the Sikh cannons are firing one to three. So what that means is for every one cannonball the, the British are firing, the Sikhs are firing three. It's not I predominant in, in all their guns, but right. it was something which all military historians actually noted at the time and note even at this time as well. So it just shows you the improvements made. Because you've got to remember, the Europeans who came um, and kind of worked for the Maharaja included people like you know, General Allard, General Ventura, um, mm -hmm. General Court amongst other, Gen General Abu Dhabi, for instance. And these had all experienced fighting in Europe, you know, fighting, you know, within the armies of Napoleon, for instance. So there's a vested interest for them to be fighting the British <laughs> in, right. in, in, so in the sub subcontinent, but also to actually sharing their knowledge with uh, the Sikh Empire as well. Because I find that interesting that if it's almost like an open mind, you know, it's... They, uh, the Sikh, Sikh soldier gets this gun, takes a look at it and says, okay, well, this is the way it needs to, needs to work. Whereas if uh, the European mentality is, oh, this is the way we've always done it, this is the way it's done, and this is the way we think about it, and this is ingrained in our culture of how to use this, this, this piece of equipment. Whereas now, now the, the Sikh get it, and it's like, okay, well, Without knowing, without being uh, exposed to the European mentality of mm. culture, now yeah. you have a different culture and you end up getting a three to one ratio, which yeah. that could that couldn't be that may not be with the actual gun, and that may be just in the loading of the whole, yeah. you know, the mechanics mm. of the 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 crew. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the whole idea of um, the gunners, for instance, having um, being adept in being able to load the guns, for instance, was, was a major advantage. I mean, the key point here is that, um, you know, the idea of the artillery wasn't new in India. You had people like Tipu Sultan down the south mm -hmm. who already employed individuals to be engineering guns, for instance. But that technology hadn't actually reached the Punjab in that sense. So during the Sikh Empire, whilst in the missile period, the Sikhs did have cannons, but it was the ones which were taken from the Afghans, for instance. So whatever right. they could take and poach, they took and used. But here during the Sikh Empire, there is this re-engineering that's taking place and which is proving to um, produce dividends. I think what happened was there was an earlier battle which Maharaja Ranjit Singh fought against the Multan government. And the cannons, including the famous cannon, which they called the Zamzama, which is actually was used, which was taken from the Afghans, but it actually lent its course now. So when they had the siege of Multan, it didn't prove to be as beneficial as they wanted it to be. So Maharaja Ranjit Singh realized that, you know, 
as much as we're kind of absorbing the missiles, creating these new units in the army, we need to make sure that the artillery is actually being improved on as well. So year on year, you've noticed that difference taking place. I'd like to get back uh, to another thing that you said about uh, European, the European, I'm going to use the word culture, getting into the Sikh, uh, the Sikh mentality. Did you find, or in your research, did you see that you had um, seek, uh, I'll say fundamentals that, look, I don't, we don't we need anything from the Europeans. They have nothing of value for us. Where, and then you had others, maybe more the Orthodox or, or, or more accepting, more open-minded that said, no, you know, we can learn from everybody. You know, we should be able to absorb this. And did, was there conflict? Not necessarily armed conflict, but maybe uh, social conflict yeah. in that. Yeah. Well, this is the key point, you see. So the Sikhs in the 18th century are primarily cavalry. Okay. So very little infantry, very little artillery. So what Maharaja Ranjit Singh is, he's employing these individuals to become part of these artillery units. Infantry is seen like a dance. It was referred to as the ballets, ballets, you know, the fool's dance, sorry. Mm -hmm. That's what it was described as. So he had to increase the pay rates for people to be employed in infantry, for instance. And then the people came flocking to become, you know, as part of this infantry, you know, just guarding a building, for instance, because for the Sikhs, they were wanted to be in battle. But then he right. was able to employ maybe deserters from the East India Company or maybe Gurkhas or other individuals. And then eventually Sikhs would become part of this as well. Now, we talk about this European influence, um, and that's why people like Akali Fula Singh, who I alluded to earlier as a Nihang, as this Akali warriors, they did not like the European Western method of, 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 you know, of drill. So they would never have become part of this. Um, but eventually, some of the warriors of the Khalsa, of the Nihangs, did get elite, become part of the elite units as well. But they were given a bit more freedom as well because Maharaja Ranjit Singh was very, very clever. He had prescribed units where you would have to follow a military order, you know, the clothing. Then he had individuals who would actually be still part of the cavalry, but then they'd have a lot more freedom as well. So he knew how to balance people's thought process, essentially, and how to have you know, get the best out of individuals. And that was his genius when it came to the military kind of strategy that he had. He tried to kept everybody happy, even though there was like this tension of, well, okay, the Nahangs don't like this European method of training because they've got their own method. So what Maharaja Ranjit Singh is doing, he's kind of saying, well, okay, I've got the European style of units. I've got the traditional missile units. I've got the traditional Nahangs. How do I employ them? Because I've got the best of all worlds, essentially. So you're saying that um, Maharaja Rajit Singh, one of his greatest attributes wasn't necessarily his uh, physical and battle prowess, mm -hmm. but his his battle of the administration. Yeah. And even though he sometimes led campaigns as well, mm -hmm. he did lead campaigns, but he did leave it up to his military generals to be fighting those battles. But that administration was absolutely unheard of. How do you incorporate, you know, leaders from the missile period? You get the Europeans coming in, retraining individuals. People are not going for it, but then all of a sudden pay rates go up and then everyone wants to be part of it. you got these traditional units. It's almost like a bolt-on, essentially. Right. So you have an army, you're bolting this on, you're bolting that on. 
normally what would happen is it would go to pot essentially mm -hmm. you know it's like well we just can't add things on because there's going to be tensions but he skillfully mastered people's ideas and thereby having different units he could keep them away from each other but when it came through the battle itself they would all converge and then you know they would play their part essentially you know it's interesting to hear that because that you hear or you read or if you're a student of history one of the biggest and i'm going to take it to europe one of the biggest problems austria hungary had mm. now austrian empire had was that it could not field an army from its full the full power of its empire uh, yeah. because uh, nobody spoke the same language nobody was there to really administer um obvious uh you know I, I, i'll put it like this you know racist you know men, uh, mentality well the croats can't do it as well as the hungarians the hungarians can't do it as well as the polish the austrians would do it better than everybody else so we're not going and so it it takes a leader administrator to be able to take all of these groups and form one cohesive unit to be able to do that and in this case in the, in the in the sikh world maharaja rajit singh was that guy he was that person to be able to take the different mentalities, the different emotions, the different, um, in this case, I'm going to say different religions, because as you said, there was um, not just the Europeans, but uh, uh, probably some rogue Afghans. There's, you know, people from, from yeah. uh, Tibet. I mean, anybody else that would want to join yeah. and to be able to form that and then put a cohesive unit together was probably something uh that the world could probably have used, especially if uh, they kept an open mind. And well, it shows that the uh, Maharaja Rajit Singh had that open mind to be able to administrate like that. Yeah, I think um, he'd, he'd actually realized that, you know, he needs improvements to this particular army and to actually get the best of all worlds. So he was not, um, you, know, you know, he was averse to having all these new people coming in end of the day, he actually had certain prescriptions for them. So for arguments say like the Europeans had to wear the turban, they had to grow their beard. Right, he right, wanted right. them to, he, in a way, it was a ploy. He wanted them to get married there as well. So they would never leave kind of thing as well. I mean, they were free to leave or, you know, they had, you know, they'd have to put in a request if they ever wanted to go back to right. Europe. So for instance, Allard, General Allard, he went back to France. He went back to his king. He was able to actually procure weapons for the Sikh Empire. So it even goes back to that detail as well. You know, we've got carbines. Um, we've got the cuirasses of, of a French style being employed by the specific unit called the Fargy Cars. OK, so the European the units were called the Fargy Cars, for instance. So, you know, it just shows you that, you know, Maharaja Ranjit Singh did not care where these individuals came for. If they fought for a common cause, they behaved themselves because there's zero tolerance you know, the, the crime was very, very low in the Punjab during the time of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. So therefore, you know, everyone behaved themselves. Everyone got rewarded. Everyone was, was kind of getting rich. People, landowners got richer and richer. So there was this very, and the educational system was very great during time, the Ranjit Singh period as well. So this stability, which the Punjab never had, he was able to achieve. So he was a genius at that in terms of actually achieving all these great things, not just militarily, but, you know, mm -hmm. administrative, making Punjab a very rich breadbasket of all over northern India, 
and you know the the architectural feats as well you know the the rebuilding of the the Hermundus well in fact the Hermundus which I mentioned he regilded it and made it into the golden temple essentially so he gilded it made gave it the gold effect um it just there's various innovations whether good or bad if you look at it from a from religious point of view but these are the things he did which had never happened before and it became and that's why he became the talk of the town not and that's why I mentioned in the book that he wasn't just a local power he was a world superpower in the right. fact that people of Iran want to know who he was people of France want to know who he was the king of England wants to know who he was you know we've got other states all around the world wanting to know and that's why there were mercenaries coming from you know from the west to flock into the court of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. And then you got the East India Company thinking, well, okay, anyone wants to come into the Punjab, they're definitely not coming from Calcutta. They're not gonna, they're gonna have to come via Asia, you know, from Iran and, and places like that, Iraq at, at that time, because yeah. the British stopped anyone actually crossing the borders. And they even had instructions saying, if you see a Frenchman, he needs to be arrested because we know what he's doing in the, you know, in India. He's going to be employed by the Maharaja. <laughs> well, we we don't want that, right? <laughs> so let me let me throw it. Let me ask you this: just on on that note with the Europeans, did you ever did you ever read of any? Um, and this is very selfish of me because I'm in mm. I'm in this period at the moment. Yeah. Um, any Russians coming in? I think there was, and and, and it wasn't being in, in in abundance. I think there was a couple. Um, I can't remember the names off the top of my head. Yeah. Of my head, there was definitely Russians who'd actually come as part of the East India Company and gave their views on what they thought about um, about the Sikh Empire as well. But in in an employed capacity, there was a few, but not in in, in abundance as much mm -hmm. as say the Italians and the French and right. the other other kind of races. Yeah, uh, the book is. The Rise of the Sikh Soldier, the Sikh Warrior Through the Ages, 1700-1900. Uh, Gurinder Singh Mann is joining us on Shot and Shield uh, in this episode to discuss this. Uh, one of the other aspects, now, I mean, 1700-1900, you know, after, after the British and the Sikh become friends, now they're allies, what individuals... Uh, do you see rise of, of, of prominence in, you know, after they become friends? Well, what we have is we have the Anglo-Sikh Wars, which we haven't discussed, but we have those Anglo-Sikh Wars mm -hmm. and the Sikhs are defeated um, in 1849. Then what is happening is some of the states which were already allied to the British, which we, again, are, we refer to as the cis-Sutlid states, though, so that includes Bachala, Naba, Jeend, they are very quick to actually start now providing their forces to the British um, Indian Army, if we can call it that. They were called mm -hmm. Indian Army, but, you know, under the crown of the British. Sure. So smaller units start appearing in 1849 during the Anglo-Sikh Wars, actually, where the uh, British have actually started finding Sikhs who want to be on the on the actual British side. And, but it starts off really, really slowly. Now, rather than individuals, it's more about actual units. So you start getting the 15 Lidiana Sikhs, you mm -hmm. start getting various other units as well, the pioneers, for instance. And, and the way that they actually employed people was that um, if they had three people from a particular village, you'd get certain scouts to go back into that village and say, look, we've already got three of you from your village. How about the rest of you guys? 
And this started taking place in abundance from 1849 onwards. We get to the so-called um, Indian mutiny or the, you know, th that war which takes place with the, with the East India Company. And therefore, the Sikhs are employed even en masse after that because they're kind of considered to be very loyal to the British at that time as well. So the recruitment campaigns were continuous and you do get individuals who rise up, but they're all rising up to be part of specific units within the East India Company and then within the British Raj as well. So, for, and then leading on to, you know, World War One and World War Two as well. Right. Yeah, and there's no is, is there any particular unit that you found interesting? Um, well, or uh, that stood stood head and shoulders above everyone else. Well, th there was. I mean. Th the, all the units actually played their part. I mean, the Sikhs were actually employed in Africa at a very, very early state as mm -hmm. well. They were employed against the Afghans, you know, the Afghans. I think a per, a Persian, in the Persian Wars also, I think there was a unit that went to, to Iran when they were, yeah. when, if I read that right, when the, the English was a little, they, the British were a little upset because uh, I, I, Iran uh, took over Herat inside Afghanistan when it was supposed to be Afghanistan, and then, you know, they've sent a force so, uh, over there. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. So therefore, you know, the, in China, for instance, the Sikhs were there, mm -hmm. you know, you name all these countries. So the whole idea was to actually say, by the time we get to World War One and World War Two, the job's already done in terms of what the Sikhs were doing, because it happened 50, 60, 70 years earlier, which people right. don't seem to know. And that's why I uh, narrate a lot of campaigns which the Sikhs fought in. But I think the key thing um, also is um, you can see behind me now, there's a, you know, there's an image of a statue there. Mm -hmm. And we recently, it's a project that I worked on for four years here in Leicester in the UK to get a Sikh statue installed in Victoria Park. Um, and this individual is not a named individual, but he's also based on this unit called the 15th Lidiana Sikhs, for instance. So it's considered a very standard kind of unit in the sense that whenever you see Sikhs, you know, in the colonial period, you would see someone very similar to this individual. But that's why we kind of chose him uh, or, or we chose that unit because it's very standard at the time. And they fought in various military campaigns across that colonial period as well. So it represented, it commemorates the representation yeah, exactly. of, yeah. Uh, yeah. of the Sikh of soldier, them. of all of yeah. them. Mm. The uh, So on a, on a personal note, how you've devoted your life it seems to the this uh, taking up the Sikh flag, the Sikh cause, as it were, you know, to make sure I've everybody tried. I've well, tried. <laughs> <laughs> well that that so everybody remembers and and yeah. and knows and understands the importance of the civilization to uh, to the world. Um, so personally, how how satisfying is that when you see a statue like that get built? I'll be honest with you, um, when I was involved in the committee in terms of actually them tasking me to look into designs, working with an artist, um, it was a long slog, four mm -hmm. years, a long time. But we had COVID in, in between as well. Sure. So we had that as well. So um, it's kind of um, <clears throat> having people's expectations. So you may have seat congregations expectations, you have military historians expectations, and you have other people's expectations as well. Luckily for us, as much as I'm a Sikh historian, I also waded in and got 
military historians from the you know from this colonial period if you call it that working on the statue as well well what's the belt buckle looking like what's the you know the turban looking like so we had zoom calls we got everybody involved and to actually see it in the ground um in october of 2022 which is just you know we're, we're talking about just weeks ago. ago yeah yeah exactly just weeks ago it was such a you know satisfying time to see it in the ground after all the hard work had gone in but the feedback that we had regards to this statue is absolutely phenomenal as well so this it's very it's near a university so therefore you've got students coming by people taking selfies as part of the remembrance com uh, commemorations we had people of all walks of life being very very genuinely interested to actually say well okay we want to know more about the Sikh contribution we want to know more about Sikhs per se so and then also by having, um, you know, the actual story go global as well in terms of it being covered by the world media as well. That's what actually was very, very satisfying to say, look, OK, we know it's a local project, but we know it's something which will bring tourism into the city. It'll bring individuals to be more curious about the Sikhs. And sometimes it's not necessarily about this, this particular statue per se in terms of what we're trying to envisage, but it starts that conversation for people right. who don't know well, who the Sikhs are about, essentially. You know, something visible is very, very powerful. The um, And for you personally, afterwards, you, you sit down and do you have this big sigh of relief? Uh, is a big, it's almost like uh, you just ran a marathon and, or yeah. are you the type of person that sits down and goes, okay, what's next? Well, <laughs> it's a really good question. I think with this particular project, uh, due to the complexities of it, it was relief as well. And, and I wanted to see what people's reactions were as well. And there have been other statues which have been installed in the UK already. And again, it's not about criticism, but, right. but more, more about critique. We felt we could do a better job. We felt we could actually ensure that it would be very, very lifelike. So, you know, working with an artist called Taranjit Singh from the company Taran 3D, mm. he was already a digital sculptor. Forget about, uh, you know, traditional sculpturing. We were, we were working with him in 3D. We were, working, we were looking at um, things done on 3D. We were making changes um, on computer. So that's a different way of actually working on a statue. So it's satisfying to see what actually happened, um, you know, during the course of events when we were working on it. But quite rightly, when we get to the end, it's like, OK, relief. But then it's really funny because you do get that people could knock on your door and say, well, what's next? What's next? Right. What's next? But what's next was is already been programmed six months beforehand in terms of what I'm doing. And, you know, <laughs> you can ask me, well, what is next? So I'll tell you. <laughs> so, well, um, I just, you know, I, yeah, I, I can, yeah. I, you know, I think I've been fortunate in my life to where I've had a couple of moments where, you know, I've had, you know, five or six months of building up to something, then it's, then it achieves and you sit back and you're yeah. ex totally exhausted. You're numb for a few days. Yeah. Um, but uh, I can't imagine, you know, the, the joy and exaltation you have, you know, when you get something like this built, I mean, because in a, in a nation in England, a nation of statues, yeah, absolutely. it seems like, there. you know, I haven't been there, but I can, yeah, I yeah. just, you just watch and you see a statue every five seconds uh, as you travel mm -hmm. to be able yeah. to add to that uh, tapestry. Um, seems like it would be uh, extremely satisfying mm -hmm. and, and not only with the books, but with the museum, the Sika museum initiative uh, that yeah. you, you're director of. Um, 
you know, and every, everything that you participate in regarding the Sikh, is there any particular one that you, that you keep going back to of, of everything that ever, of everything that you are involved in? Is there anything that you continue to go back to? And just that's, that's your home. In, 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 this, in terms uh, of pro- in terms of projects, in terms yes. of any of the project, yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, I'm always revisiting everything I've done anyway because I think um, to actually do a project and then say, look, that's where it is done mm-hmm. on to the next one doesn't really cut the mustard, if I can use that word. It, it's yeah. really about always coming back to things and always if you're finding new information and say, well, okay, well, this is really great. I mean, when I first started in Sikh history. There was various things I said to myself, I will look at this at a later date. I will look at this at a later date. So my initial, we, we've talked about Guru Gobind Singh right at the onset right. of this conversation. Now, my first books were on his scripture. So whilst the Sikhs believe in the scripture called the Guru Granth Sahib, which is predominantly in all Gurdwars or um, the, the centres of faith for the Sikhs, he created his own scripture called the Dasum Granth. The Dasum Granth means um, it was named after him because Dasum means 10th. So he's the 10th guru. So it's his scripture. And it's a military scripture in the sense that the Sikhs would read through it before going into battle. Now, the reason why I went down this route was because it was considered very, very controversial by many Sikhs. They were saying, well, okay, there's these kind of stories and it's not so spiritual as the Guru Granth Sahib. But I took a different view. I felt, okay, well, this uh, scripture has been in existence as far as I know from the time of Guru Gobind Singh. So that's when I actually started my master's degree in this scripture to be looking at it from a religious point of view. But then over the course of time, looking at things from a military perspective, it kind of made sense to me why the Guru would create a scripture which, which would embolden the Sikhs to actually go out there and fight, read these verses and go out and fight. To this day, there's controversy on the scripture, but for me, there's no, there's no controversy there's nothing which actually says like you know the Dasam Granth as a scripture was not read was not created by the guru and was then you know um, a formidable part of the Sikh scriptures it's not read as widely as it was maybe during the time of Ranjit Singh period and the Sikh missile period but it's one of those things which led me into learning more about Sikh history because for me these forgotten things have to rise up to the top. You know, this these kind of forgotten things, you know, these um, concepts, ideas, which made the Sikhs who they were. So that's one thing I always go back to in terms of like, you know, that's where I got my start in terms of my history period. But then, you know, at that time, I was also looking at manuscripts. I was looking at relics, for instance. So I'm going to be doing a lot more work on Sikh relics as well. Whilst I've done that as part of the Anglo-Sikh Virtual Museum, so... So our Anglo-Sikh Virtual Museum, um, you know, has a repository of Sikh objects, which we recreated in 3D. We still kind of bolster it, you know, want to bolster that as well, get more objects onto the Virtual Museum itself. But I'm also going to be working on some books as well, specifically related to Sikh relics as well. So, you know, to kind of show the kind of beauty of the relics, the craftsmanship which took place, um, especially during the Maharaja Ranjit Singh period, which which we've alluded to. Mm-hmm. in terms of the Sikh empire so there's a lot of work still left to be done but more in terms of actually um like you said we revisit but we also improve and we kind of make um right. better you know we, we, we actually look at things from a different vantage point as well when it comes to different new projects essentially and did i did i hear a hint earlier in our conversation that another book is coming out 
Well, yes. You're so, thinking about uh, it? Yes. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> it, a couple, actually. It, this is where it gets even more scary. We're not mm. talking one now. We're talking multiple at the same time. Now, most authors, you know, die writing one book. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, you know, you've, you've, you've killed yourself trying to write a book. And it's hard work. You know, yeah. you know, even writing appendix is mm -hmm. hard work for people. Right. But uh, I'm working on, on various fronts in terms of completing several books now. So I'm doing a mastery of the Sikh missile period itself. So I'm working towards that. I've got a proposal in Excellent. with a publisher. I've already started writing it, um, but I'm just waiting for the, you know, the, the go ahead. But I will be publishing a book on the Sikh missiles. And then secondary to that is possibly two two books on Sikh relics as well. So with different or different publishing houses, but looking at Sikh relics in a different way. So one's definitely going to be from a military perspective right. in terms of Sikh value. Sorry, the, the Sikh relics values and what they held in terms of and what they what the Sikhs brought to the table. And the other one will be more about Sikh relics in general on a worldwide level, if that makes sense. So yeah, different perspectives, but um but I think for me, that missile period, which I've covered in the British and the Sikhs, right. covered in the rise of the Sikh soldier, has not been adequately been kind of um, discussed. There's, a, there's a lot more, lot more juice lot. in there. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, and as far as the relics go, so are we talking? Are we talking a a, a, a coffee table book? Um, yeah, one will be a coffee table book. Excellent. One, one, yeah, absolutely. That's something I've not done as of yet. So. I'm trying to get that sorted because you know I have to tell you that there's love the coffee table books mm. and any in, in almost any uh subject matter that's like the beginning when you see a ta coffee table book yeah and if that's where you start that's not where you'll end up because it, yeah. it you open up mm. a coffee table book and it's like oh that's interesting that's interesting I need to learn more it's like a starter yeah. you know so. Well, that was missing from you know from my you know from my plethora of publications and projects. <laughs> the coffee table book is missing, so yeah, definitely I'll be going down that route as well. Excellent. And, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, speaking with Gurinder Singh Man, the author of *The Rise of the Sikh Soldier: Sikh Warriors Through the Ages, 1700 to 1900. You can catch this book on Hellion and Press Company website. You can just get it, own it have it part of your library uh and uh the previous uh the previous book the british and the sikhs discovery warfare friendship 1700 and 1900 another fantastic uh tome uh and an upcoming uh is um, uh, a book uh, on the missiles and then a coffee table book which is fantastic <laughs> gurinder i appreciate you uh taking the time uh, to uh, join us on Shot and Shield today. Uh, always welcome. And uh, you're a good friend, and I appreciate you very much. No, absolutely. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you interviewing me, and I really love sharing these stories. As you can tell, um, these stories need to be told on a wider scale as well. It's not These stories aren't just for the Sikhs. This is for the world, and that's what Maharaja Ranjit Singh was trying to do. He was trying to tell people, look, we're not just Sikhs um, in a small place called the Punjab. We are this great nation, uh, which we want to tell our stories. And that's why I'm here. I'm a storyteller. I want to tell these stories and I'll continue to do so. And to be on these great platforms like yours to actually share these stories as well. So thank you very much for having me.
This is Shot and Shield. Hallyho, your uncle. Shot and Shield is on social media. There's the Twitter page at Shot and Shield. Please follow. There's a Facebook group, the Shot and Shield Podcast War Gaming Group. It's open to all. Please join and post some of your amazing games, paint jobs, and creations. Finally, the email, shotandshield at gmail.com. Email me if you have a question or a thought or even a complaint that you'd like read and answered on the podcast. Shot and Shield is on social media. This is Shot and Shield. It's going to hurt you a lot more than it will me, I'm happy to say. A podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. Discipline makes the strength of armies. Shot and Shield. And the Lord spake, saying, Shalt thou count to three? No more, no less. Three shall be the number thou shalt count. And the number of the counting shall be three. Four shalt thou not count, neither count thou two, excepting that thou then proceed to three. It is time for the top five reveal. Five is right up. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to the Shot and Shield Supercast, which can be heard on any of your favorite podcast apps. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Ghana, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Deezer, and most any podcast app on the planet. So thank you very much. At this time, let's take a look at last episode's top five question, which was, who introduced you to wargaming? As I said earlier, this question received a lot of response. I got really quite, quite a ton of emails regarding this, and every one of them an amazing story. I could do a whole show. Uh, I could do a three-hour show probably just reading each of these emails. For the moment, let's just take a look at the votes that you cast on the Shot and Shield Podcast Wargaming Group Facebook group in the top five question poll. Once again, who introduced you to Wargaming? Number five. A hobby shop or relative was tied for fifth. Number four. A classmate. Number three. A video, book, magazine, or social media. I have to say I clumped them all together because it's sort of like media. So I thought just putting media down there would be uh, maybe confusing, but a video, book, magazine, or, or social media, I thought I'd clump them all together. And that made it to number three. Number two. A friend. I will tell you this. (laughs) <laughs> if uh, if my friend introduced me to it, I don't know if I'd be friends with him that much longer because it's expensive. Let me tell you. And now that my friends made me spend money because I love this game. All right, so number one. Found it on your own. Which, you know what? If you have found it on your own, I applaud you. If you have found it on your own and you have not passed it on, I condemn you. I condemn you. You got to. Pass it on to anybody you know. Anybody who looks interested. If they have a weird eye going on, you say, hey, look, I got a game for you. Right now, in this world, there are so many demands on our time. There are so many choices to be had. I think that when a friend or a classmate, or you see it online or a relative or a you know, grandfather 
introduces you to this. I think that has, I think it carries weight. It helps us expand the hobby. It helps us move the hobby, helps us grow the hobby. And I think that this hobby needs that. I think it's, I think it's, it's an incredible hobby and I would hate for it to, to go by the wayside because video games are more popular or whatever else. You know, we're not in a battle with them and we have to be more cognizant as we introduce people uh, to the game. We want people to play. We want people to get involved. We want people to continue this after we're gone. Because I, I don't know about you, I love this game. I do. This is, I hope you hear my passion about this game because I love this game. And it's not just not wargaming the my particular element, my 19th century deal, but all wargaming is good. And so please, anytime you have a chance to introduce it to somebody, I hope you take that opportunity. Anyway, that was this episode's top five. Who introduced you to wargaming? Keep watching the Shot and Shield podcast wargaming group on Facebook for the new top five question. And thank you to all of you who have introduced others to this incredible hobby. This is Shot and Shield. I hear the conditions in your army are appalling. Well, I'm sorry, but those are my conditions, and you'll just have to accept them. From the land of the audio to the world of the visual, the Shot and Shield podcast is on YouTube. I use YouTube for supplementary information, such as watch-along videos, documentaries of interest, movies that I find that uh, best represent colonial or 19th century inspirations or gaming, and eventually video from interviews that I've uh, already done and that you've heard on the podcast. Just search out, in parentheses, Shot and Shield. You got to put the parentheses in there, parentheses, Shot and Shield, and parentheses, and you'll find it on the YouTube. There's also a link on the podcast info page. So check it out and subscribe to Shot and Shield on YouTube. This is Shot and Shield. You don't think I too dream of peace. You don't think I too yearn to end this damn dirty job we call soldiering? Frankly, no. We're in the home stretch of this episode of the Shot and Shield Supercast. You can hit me up uh, by going to Twitter at Shot and Shield or on the email at the Shot and Shield Podcast at gmail.com or Facebook in the Shot and Shield Podcast Wargaming Group. In this episode's archaeological audio discovery, I present to you the story of Bo Brummel from the Lux Theater recorded in 1937. The lead character, Bo Brummel, is played by the magnificent Robert Montgomery who you've seen in uh, They Were Expendable with John Wayne, and as Philip Marlowe in Lady in the Lake. Also, just so you know, I didn't do a ton of editing on this version like I do other radio plays. In most plays uh, that I present here, I'll cut out the advertisements uh, or uh, just the volume or I'll or do something to improve the sound quality just to make it an easier listening experience for you. Um, there is something interesting in this presentation from the Lux Theater, uh, an interesting, significant historical event that is discussed during this production, which I felt you might find interesting. And now, please enjoy Bo Brummel on Shot and Shield. Hollywood, California, Monday, July 5th. 
The Lux Radio Theater presents Robert Montgomery in Bull Brummel with Madge Evans and an all-star cast. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. For the tourist portrait of George Brian Brummel, look outside your window tonight. His career like the Roman candle that flares across the sky, emblazoned the earth for a while in brilliant glory, then dimmed forever and was gone. Born in England, while war was being waged for the independence we celebrate today, Paul Brummel was the sublime dandy of all time. He lived in an age of fashion and super-sophistication, cutting his phrases with a tongue as sharp as the shears that styled his elegant attire. Not of noble birth, he cared nothing for those who were. He ruled society with audacity and invincible calm. A duchess once walked backwards out of a room because Brummel said her back was an offense to his eye. The lace of his boots, the blue of his coat, the number of buttons that decorated his trousers just above the ankles were as much the laws of England as if decreed by Parliament itself. That was Beau Brummel, who lives again on our stage tonight as played by Robert Montgomery of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Studios. One of the few stars using the name he was born with, Bob's first job was that of an assistant railroad mechanic in charge of tapping wheels. After a spell as a deckhand, he joined the stock company and played 70 different characters in 72 weeks. He's president of the Screen Actors Guild, has ambitions to write, direct, and to see more of his farm in Upper New York State. Unsurpassed in Devil May Care roles, Bob's done a turnabout in his current picture, Night Must Fall, delivering one of the year's best serious performances. Love, Live, and Learn is the title of his next film. Playing opposite him tonight in the role of Mariana is Bob's co-worker from MGM, Madge Evans, one of the best reasons why Hollywood is renowned for its beautiful women. An actress since childhood, Madge ranks high on the lists of the screen's most accomplished players. Our all-star cast finds Leo G. Carroll as Brummel's servant, Mortimer. Bramwell Fletcher as Reginald, Jean Lockhart as the Prince, Kathleen Lockhart as Mrs. St. Auburn, and, Mac and Edwin Maxwell as Mr. Vincent. Somewhere in a distant corner of the South Pacific is Miss Amelia Earhart, who had planned at this moment to be on the stage of the Lux Radio Theater. I know everyone hearing me now joins in our hope that the rescuers of Miss Earhart and her navigator, Fred Noonan, will reach them swiftly and find them safe. I've just spoken with George Palmer Putman, husband of Miss Earhart in Oakland. Considerably more encouraged than he was yesterday, Mr. Putnam says that after a careful check of all reports, he believes the flyers are on land. He adds that they have adequate supplies which should last Miss Earhart and Captain Noonan until the arrival of rescue ships or planes. At the end of this hour, we have an important announcement for you. But now, on with the play, as the Lux Radio Theater presents Robert Montgomery and Madge Evans in Bo Brummel with an all-star Hollywood cast. Of rising. Seated in front of his dressing table mirror, Bo Brummel 
Will you wear the yellow waistcoat, Mr. Balanzar? A yellow waistcoat with green trousers? Really, Mortimer? Must I appear on the streets looking like a canary? Your pardon, sir. The tan waistcoat, of course, sir. With the brocade, please. And a ruffled shirt this morning. Yes, Mr. Brummel. Now continue. What further news in London? None of any account, sir. The Dowager Lady Slopington ran off yesterday with young Philip Pettibone. As it happened yesterday, it must be forgotten today. And Captain Badminton shot himself in the park last night, sir. After losing 10,000 pounds at hazard. Oh, it was very stupid of him. He should have shot himself first. <clears throat> Is he dead, Mortimer? Uh, no, sir. Really? Well, he always was a bad shot. You'll find some of his IOUs among my papers. Return them to him cancelled with my compliments. He can use them for plasters. And who has called? Oh, nobody, sir. To be sure, there's been the usual crowd of people with invitations for dinners and balls, sir. Yes, of course. And the usual crowd of creditors with their bills and accounts. Hmm. I said you were not able to see them because you had spent the evening with the prince, sir. Please, Mortimer, you must be more careful. Tradespeople are apt to look upon dissipation very differently from persons in fashion. You may say what you like about our plump friend, the prince, but handle me a little delicately, please. Your pardon, sir. Will you examine the bills, sir? Certainly not, Mortimer. Hide them away somewhere where I can't see them, and I shall feel as if they've been paid. Uh, Mr. Brummel, sir, there's one that came by messenger. A memorandum of your IOU for a thousand pounds. The sum you lost to Lord Gainsbury three nights ago at the card table. Ah, the deuce, Mortimer. That must be paid today. It's a debt of honor. How can we get the money? I might try Mr. Abrams again, sir. But he was very difficult the last time. Hmm. Mr. Brummel, sir, this can't go on much longer. No, no, I hope not. Everybody's pressing on you, and the only thing that keeps them off at all is your friendship with the prince. And if anything should happen to that, Nothing sir, could happen to that, Mortimer. And if anything did, I should cut the prince and make the old king the fashion. If I... If I might be so bold, sir, I've been wondering, Mr. Brummel, of the advisability of a rich manage. Yes, yes, it has occurred to me occasionally. In fact, it's passed through my mind quite recently that it might be desirable. Only to decide on the person really seems too difficult a task for me to undertake. You would not have me marry a mere money bag, Mortimer? <laughs> but the great Mr. Brummel has only to choose, sir. Yes, yes, of course. But one desires some sentiment. I wouldn't care to make a loan for life and give myself the security. Mr. Brummel, sir, have you ever observed Miss Mariana Vincent? Yes, yes, I've noticed her in the park. Her person is perfect. Is her matrimonial figure good? I believe it is 60,000 pounds, sir. Oh, but Mr. Vincent would be ashamed to offer so little to the wife of Mr. Brummel. I should hope so. But uh, if Mrs. St. Auburn should hear of this... Hmm. Mrs. St. Auburn has no claim upon you, sir. Her attraction for you is purely platonic. I've heard you say so. Quite true, quite true. And if you could present her to the prince, Mr. Brummel, don't you think a platonic friendship might spring up there? She's ambitious, is Mrs. St. Auburn. But she's clever. She'd never forgive a slight. Well, we shall see. Mortimer, write a letter to Mr. Vincent. Make my proposal for his daughter's hand. Be mindful of your language and careful to accomplish it in the most elegant manner. And uh, request an immediate reply. Uh, yes, sir. But don't you think... What is it, Simpson? Mr. Brummel's nephew, sir. Mr. Reginald Courtney. Ask him to come in here. Mr. Courtney. Thank you, thank you. Good morning, Mortimer. Good morning, Uncle Brown. Reginald, Reginald, please. You are evidently laboring under the impression that I'm a great distance off. Sorry, sir. Good morning, Reginald. Good morning. I hope you're well, sir. No, no, I've contracted a cold. I suppose everybody will have colds. <laughs> you can make anything fashionable, Uncle Brown. Yes. As well, Reginald, I'm delighted to see you. Thank you. 
The fact is, I've come on rather an important mission. Important? Well, I'm afraid it'll have to wait. What? Till after I've had my chocolate. But, Uncle, bro. Discuss important questions before breakfast, my boy. Is savagery in the extreme? Sit down, my boy. Sit down. Mortimer, have Simpson put another cup on the tray. Make quite sure. Another cup of chocolate, Mr. No, thank you, Mortimer. Uh, Mr. Brummel, sir. One, Mortimer. You know I always have only one. Uh, very good, sir. <sighs> well, Reginald, may I begin now? Yes, I think so. Well, Bo, uh, Uncle Bo, I need your help and your advice. Yes, yes, of course. You, uh, you haven't got yourself in any difficulties, I hope? No, sir, not exactly. I'm glad. You're the one person in the world, Reginald, for whom I have any real affection. I should hate to see you involved in anything from which I couldn't free you. Well? Well, what is it, Reginald? If you're in debt, I'll give you a letter to Mr. Abrams. If you're in the doldrums, I'll give you one to Mrs. St. Aubyn. I'm in neither, Uncle Bill. I'm in love. Yes, that's worse than either. <laughs> How do you know you are? Why, well, I, I feel it. I live only when she's present and merely exist when away from her. Reginald, don't talk like a family newspaper. Is your fair one possible? If you mean is she a gentlewoman, she is, and besides, she's young and beautiful. Yes, and... yes, of course she would be. But does she return your passion? She loves me, Uncle. Yes, of course she would, but... Uh... But her father doesn't. Ah, yes. He's refused to let me see her again. We have to meet secretly. But why? Because he has an eye on a title for her. He's rich enough now, and he's beginning to have social ambitions. That's all he cares about. But she, well, she doesn't care about anything. Only, only me. Reginald, you're more conceited than I am. Impossible, sir. Uh, oh, no, I mean... Never mind, never mind. Why, what do you want me to do about your little romance? I want you to help me to win over her father. I could do it, I think, if I were... Well, if I were somebody in a social way. And you know everyone, Uncle Bo, all the way up to the prince himself. And the king. And the king. My boy, you shall have the girl if I have to plead for you myself. That will hardly be necessary, of course. Come back tomorrow, Reginald, and I shall make you the most talked of, the most socially prominent young gentleman in London. How, sir? How I shall allow you to be seen with me in public. Uncle Bo! We shall walk together through the park. Yes. And be seen together at the coffee shop for a few minutes. Well, my boy... Can anyone possibly do anything more for you? No, Uncle. Oh, yes, Uncle. You can do one more thing. I've left my purse at home. Will you um, lend me a couple of crowns? Reginald, uh, you know I never use silver. It's dirty and it's heavy. Ask Simpson for a few guineas as you go out. By the way, Reginald, it's just possible that I may enter into the golden bands myself. I am thinking somewhat of a marriage with a certain young lady whose charms, strange to say, very much resemble those you would have described had I permitted you to inflict me. You marry, Uncle? You? You think I'm too old, perhaps? Oh, no, sir. Why, you're hardly over 40, sir. 36. Yes, sir. I'm very serious, Reginald. I think I may marry. Then, Uncle... I'm glad for you. Thank you, Reginald. Run along now. I have an early appointment with our stout Prince Regent. We're going to ride along the mall in his carriage. He thinks the jiggling on the cobblestones may reduce his weight. Good day, sir. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate being seen out with you tomorrow. Reginald, Reginald, don't bombard me. Oh, uh, good day, Uncle Bo. Good day, Reginald. <laughs> And if you will do me the honor to call upon me, or if I may do myself the honor of appearing on your doorstep tomorrow evening, 
I'm sure the association will be of mutual satisfaction. My very kindest greetings to your gracious and charming daughter, Mariana. Signed, your most respectful and most obedient servant, Mr. Bo Brummel. Bo Brummel. You hear, Mariana? I hear, Father. You know what this means, I hope. He wants to ask for your hand. Of course he does. He, well, he doesn't say so. But look here. Three times he mentions your name. Asks after your health. There's no doubt of it, Mariana. Mr. Bo Brubble wants to marry you. Yes. Well, you're a cold piece of goods. Am I, Father? Perhaps it doesn't mean as much to me as it does to you. It means a social position in London second to none. That's what it means. Why, I, I may even be given a title. When you marry Bo Brummel... You mean if I marry Bo Brummel, don't you, Father? Hmm? What's this? He hasn't asked me yet, and I haven't accepted him. Mariana, are you mad? Am I to work all this time to marry you into a decent name and have it go for nothing? We have a decent name, Father. And an honest name, too. Yes. And with a little luck, the name of Vincent will be known throughout the court. It's known there now, I think. Eh? They can read it on the buttons of their coats. <laughs> My dear, I am not a tailor. I am a cloth merchant. You seem anxious to forget it these days. I'm not. I'm not. I've been a cloth merchant all my life. And a good one. Is that a reason why I shouldn't be an earl? An earl? You are aiming high. Well, uh, a knight at least. I don't hesitate to say it. Nor hesitate to use me to get it for you. Now, Mariana, what's come over you? Another girl would jump at the chance to marry Bo Brummel. Another girl may think the title and position are more important than... than... Than love. Now I see it. That young fool, Courtney. He's the one who's turned your head. I really believe you'd marry Reginald Courtney, a fellow without a shilling to his name, and pass up the greatest catch of the day, wouldn't you? Yes, I would. Well, you shan't. Do you understand? You shan't. I forbid him in the house, and I mean it. Then I'll see him outside of the house. I have been seeing him. Mariana. I told you I would. I should know better than to demand things of you. Now I must ask you not to see Reginald Courtney. I ask you, Mariana. I'm sorry, Father. It's for your own good, child. Believe me, it is. And it's for your own good to consider a proposal from Bo Brummel. He's as penniless as Reginald. You know that. But he has a name. A name. Yes. A name for gambling. A name for philandering. A name for all the petty little vices that a man can have. Well, he won't make it my name. Because I won't have it, I won't marry him. And if he comes tomorrow, I won't even see him. Mariana, come back here. Come. I'm going to my room. Miss Mariana. Well, I've been waiting for you to come. Sorry, the Kathleen. That young gentleman is here again, Mr. Courtney. Reginald, where is he? In the garden, behind the tree near the back gate. I'll see him. Wait here, Kathleen. Yes, Miss Mariana. Mariana, I thought you'd never get here. I didn't know. Kathleen just told me. Here, if we can sit behind the tree. Let me look at you. Oh, you're more beautiful than you were yesterday. I won't be if father catches us. Come on. I hate skulking about like this, but I have to see you. I hate it more than you, darling. It's been horrible. Oh, Mariana. And now I suppose it will be worse than ever. It can't be much. What do you mean? Nothing. Has your father been at my throat again? As usual. Uh, he won't be for long. I've got a little surprise in store for him and for you. Surprise? Tomorrow. Tomorrow what? Tomorrow I shall go for a walk in the park. <laughs> the rest is the surprise. Tomorrow may bring more surprises than you think. In the evening, a gentleman is coming to call on me. What? 
Oh, a very fine gentleman. A gentleman whose hair is curled in the latest mode, whose buckles even are the latest to be seen, who smells of the very latest perfume. Are you jesting, Mariana? Worse luck, I'm not. Who is the man? Why is he coming? Oh, let's not talk of it, Reginald. Darling. He wants you to marry him. That's it, isn't it? I suppose so. You must feel very flattered. A real gentleman. Reginald. It's a strange thing that he's allowed the front door while I have to sneak about hiding behind trees. That isn't my fault. Who is he? Does it matter, darling? I suppose you've sent your acceptance? Reginald, please, if I'd known you were going to act like this, I shouldn't have told you. Well, how do you expect me to act? Am I to stand by and watch some court dandy steal you away from me? He hasn't stolen me yet. Yet? Oh, I see. He might, though. There's a chance of it. I didn't say that. That's what you meant. Oh, you're unreasonable. You're not going to see him. Do you understand that? I won't allow it. You won't allow it? I'm a little tired of having my life routine by other people. I'm a little tired of being told what to do and what not to do. Hereafter, I shall do what I like. You refuse me, then? I shall do what I like. Very well, then. Marry him. Go on, take him. If you continue to act like this, I shall. So you marry to spite me. That's the kind you are. I have a mind and a will of my own. I shall marry whom I like, when I like, and where I like. Very well, then. I wish you happiness. Goodbye, Miss Vincent. Goodbye, Mr. Courtney. Reginald. Reginald. This way, Mr. Bravo. This way. I've prepared her for your visit. She knows you're here. Thank you. She's in the drawing room. Mariana? Mariana, my dear. Yes, Father? Uh, allow me to present my daughter, sir. Mr. Beau Brummel, Mariana. Your servant, Miss Vincent? Your servant, sir. Oh, dear me, I, I just remembered. There was a... Uh, there was something I I had to attend to. Uh, you'll excuse me, Mr. Brummel? Yes, of course. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, won't you sit down, sir? Thank you. It was most kind of you to permit this rather informal visit, Miss Vincent. I had a reason, Mr. Brummel. Eh? So would I. Perhaps you can guess it. Perhaps. I am glad. It will save us no end of tedious conversation. And can you guess my reason? Why, no. Well, I'm glad, too. It must be very disconcerting to have one's thoughts so easily read by a complete stranger. <laughs> you have a ready wit, Miss Vincent. Thank you. Hmm. How is it you're not at White's this evening, sir? At the gaming table. I'm tired of the cards, Miss Vincent. They are too fickle. And besides, I'm always unlucky. Unlucky at cards? Lucky in... Love? Yes. That's why I'm here. Well, what sort of a hand shall I deal you? Yours, I hope. A diamond trump? Oh, no. Hearts. Oh, I'm sorry. I haven't won in the past. Then you deal your cards badly. That is because I have chosen nature, not art, to be my mistress. By my manners, I have a mind to bring Dame Nature into fashion again. Then there's not a woman in London could show her face. But you. And if you would deign to be seen always on my arm... Always, Mr. Brenner? I fear you would wear me as you do your coat and throw me aside when I'm wrinkled. Oh, please, please, don't mention wrinkles. They give me the jaundice. I cannot but remember that only yesterday, every bench in the mall, every lady's tea table, every entr'acte of the play, was the occasion for reporting to Mr. Brummel's fancy for the Honorable Mrs. St. Aubyn. You cannot imagine I have not favored some women more than others. Mrs. St. Aubyn was clever and amused me. We passed our time in laughter, not in loving. And now she is out of favor. On the contrary, she is greatly in favor with the prince himself. You threw her to him then? As you do your styles and your worn-out quips? You do the prince in injustice, Miss Vincent. 
But you're quite right, of course. <laughs> you're very frank. Oh, no. Lying is one of the finer arts of life. But I never practice it unless there's a chance that I can do it justice. It would be a shame to waste a perfectly good lie on a person who doesn't believe it. You're very amusing, Mr. Bravo. Yes, I know. Do you? And I am in the hope, Miss Vincent, that I may continue to amuse you often. Often? If you will accept my escort into the social life of London, if I may have the pleasure of your company at Mrs. Honor's dinner and the Prince's reception, I... Uh, the Prince's reception? Yes, yes, I heard. And your answer? We shall see, Mr. Brummel. Thank you. Your servant, Miss Vincent. Your servant, sir. Your most respectful servant, Miss... Your most respectful servant, Your sir. most ardent servant, sir. Your most... Your servant, sir. no further word from Reginald, Mariana has permitted Beau Brummel to escort her about London. It's the afternoon of the Prince's reception. Beau Brummel, in his drawing room, entertains the thoroughly jealous Mrs. St. Auburn. You're very kind, Beau, but I don't wish to give up your devotion altogether. Not even for the Prince's. Take both, Horatia. Mine you will always have. <laughs> Did you think me blind when you presented the Vincents at Mrs. Honor's and at Lady Marley's? I know your purpose. And I know your reason for presenting them at the Prince's this evening. I do no more for the Vincents than I've done for you. It was I who introduced you to the Prince also. Fortunately, he's now very fond of you. Oh, it was not for my sake you introduced me, but for your own. It was a pleasant way to get rid of me. No way with such a destination could possibly be pleasant. You passed the Prince with the conceit that he is driving you out of my affections against your will. <laughs> Suppose he should know the truth. Royal personages are so rarely told the truth that if he did hear it, he wouldn't recognize it. What would become of his friendship for you, do you think? And what would you do without it? He would have my sincere sympathy. Suppose I were to inform him? My dear Horatia would not be so foolish as to ruin herself. Would the prince, do you think, still care for you if he thought I no longer admired you? I will not be thrown over for the daughter of a cloth merchant. The prince shall know whom he is entertaining this evening, and he shall know why. I shall see to it. Then you shall have my sympathy, also. Oh, no. You seem to forget, my dear Bo, that the prince already dosed on me. <laughs> We're both playing a little game, you and I. But I am persuaded I shall win, for I stake on a heart. Your fortune will turn, for you stake on a knave. And the knave is you? Exactly. And what will take my knave when the king is out of the pack? Why, then, I think a queen might turn up. And the queen? Miss Mariana Vincent. Oh, good day, Mr. Brummel. Good day, Horatia. <laughs> We must be at our best this evening. Quite right, Mr. Brummel. There's sir. no telling what may happen. But I have a feeling, Mortimer, that our troubles are almost over. I hope so, sir. If Mrs. St. Aubin doesn't cook your goose, sir. Cook my, uh, Mortimer. Oh, forgive me, sir. If Mrs. St. Aubin is not the cause of an altercation, sir. Uh, it's better, Mortimer. Thank you, sir. No, I think Horatia's day is waning and Mariana's reign begins. I shall tell her so this evening. She can't be entirely insensible to my regard... To my love. Well, strange to say, Mortimer, I begin to think I do love Mariana. Sir? Yes, I believe I do. And I think I love her madly. Yes. Yes, I do. I love madly. Yes, 
Something you discovered about your certain attraction to Mrs. St. Auburn. Curse your impudence. Softly, my dear prince, or you'll make a fool of yourself. I'm tired of your impertinence, Brummel. You're out of favor, do you hear? Could I help but hear? My dear prince, first you lose your equilibrium, and now you lose your temper. Have a little snuff. You may keep your little snuff. He knocked it out of his hand. You see that? The prince knocked it out of his hand. Very bad manners. Very bad. I shall have to leave at once. Your Highness, order my carriage. Why, you upstart! I tell you, Mr. Brummel, sir, it's the talk of all London. Yes, my my chocolate, please. What is the talk of all London, Morton? Your insult to the prince, sir. Last night at the reception. Oh, yes, yes. Well, it's all over now. The prince has probably forgotten it. I have. Your creditors hadn't, sir. It was your friendship with his highness that saved us before, but this morning there were two bailiffs at the door, sir. Bailiffs? Disgusting. What did they want? They were sent by your creditors to, to, to arrest you, sir. Well, if they come again, you may reassure them, Mortimer. You may tell them I have an appointment this morning with his highness. Oh, have you, sir? No, but I'll be riding through the park with Mr. Sheridan. We're sure to meet the prince's carriage. We'll stop and talk. If he should cut you, sir, then I shall cut him back. But he won't, Mortimer. Have no fear. There it is. The prince's carriage. He's coming this way, Bo. Ah, yes, the prince. There, fellow. He's stopping. Thomas, stop the carriage. Good morning, Your Highness. Ah, uh, good morning, Sherry. I'm delighted to see you. Thank you, Your Highness. Out for a drive, huh? Yes, Mr. Brummel and it's I... It's a beautiful day for it. Beautiful. Uh, well, uh, good day. But, Your Highness, wait. Would you like to drive with me, Sheridan? Uh, come along, then. Come along. Well, I... I... <laughs> why, why, yes, Your Highness. Thank you. Oh, uh, Sheridan. Yes, Bull? Tell me, Sheridan, who is your fat friend? Why do you... <laughs> Drive on, please, Thomas. Mariana. Yes, Father? Mariana, you've heard the news? Yes. Mr. Brummel is a daring man. He cut the prince. Cut him dead, begad. And all for me. For you? Well, wasn't it? Bo Brummel is not the man to stand by and see his future father-in-law insulted. No. No, begad. He cut the prince last night. And they came this morning. <laughs> for me. I thought he did it partly on my account, Father. <laughs> well, uh, yes, sir, for both of us. But it's you, you alone, who can repay him. I? With the money your dowry will bring him. Oh. With that, he can pay off his creditors and defy the prince. Without it, he's ruined. Ruined, Mariana? The bailiffs are at his door even now, and... Shall we go to him, Mariana? He needs his friends now, what he has left of them. And you owe him your gratitude. You owe him your sympathy. And they must take the place of affection? Yes, Mariana. You have no other attachments now. You've neither seen nor heard anything of that young scoundrel Courtney for weeks. Or uh, have you? No. Well, then. Well, Mariana? You may order the carriage, Father. Thank you. Thank you, Mariana. Come, Mr. Brummel. Your regard and protection leave me much in your debt. Please, please, don't let that debt weigh any more heavily on you than do my debts on me. 
one smile of yours has overpaid me, Mariana. If your creditors were as easily satisfied as you are, I should be prodigal of my smiles. And if your smiles were the coinage, I think I should turn miser. You're not practical. I must make you so. I am your slave, and the chains I wear are no burden. May I indeed hope that you will accept my humble service, that you will be my wife. You have my gratitude and my respect. And may I hope you will learn to love me a little? I hope so. I'll make myself forget. Who is it? Uncle Bo! Reginald! That crowd of men at the door, what is it? Oh, you're staring, Reginald? That's very impolite. Miss Vincent, my nephew, Mr. Courtney. Your nephew? Miss Vincent and I have met, I think. Really? Why didn't you answer my letters? Letters? I received no letters from you. What? I wrote every day from Scotland. Reginald, you... I mean, I begged your forgiveness, laid open my heart to you, and for all my pains received nothing. But I tell you, I had no word. My father must have held them from me. Oh, Reginald, I would have forgiven you. You know I would have forgiven you. You know I would. Mariana, One then... moment, please. I'm at a slight disadvantage here. Uncle Bo, this, this is Mariana. Yes, yes, I know. The girl I told you about, the girl I wanted to marry and still do. Reginald, don't. I begin to understand. You love her, Reginald? Yes. You love him, Mariana? Yes. Yes, I can see it in your eyes. Well, then, there's nothing to do, of course. But, uh, what? Take care, my boy. No, Reginald, you can't. It's too late. I've already promised But you. I release you from that promise. You mean that... Oh, I see. You see very little, Reginald. Well, you can't do this. You know what it means. It means I will see two very young people very happy. Mr. Brummel, sir, Mr. Brummel. Yes, Mortimer. His Majesty's bailiff, sir. He's at the door. They won't be held off any softly, longer. Softly, Mortimer, softly, always. Bailiff, then they're going to... Nothing, my boy, a mere formality. Tedious but necessary. No, I'll speak to my father. He'll help you. I have no claim whatever on Mr. Vincent. Now, Reginald, take her. Wear her very near your heart for my sake. I would stay with you longer, but I fear it's impossible. I happen to have a rather pressing engagement with His Majesty. Once more, the story of Bo Brummel starring Robert Montgomery and Madge Evans. With the passing of the years, passes the reign of Bo Brummel. His friends have gone with his fun and his elegance with his friends. In a poorly furnished lodging house in France, he makes a vain pretense at appearances, trying desperately to retain an outward show of his former glory. But his hair is gray. Fashion show the wear of years. Mortimer, still faithful, stands beside him in the uncarpeted room. Well, Mortimer? No letters this morning, sir. Not even one? Not even one, sir. Unless we count the bill. Hardly. Will you have your chocolate now, sir? It's all we have, but it's something. And you've eaten nothing for days, sir. I'm not hungry, Mortimer. Oh, but, sir... I said I am not hungry. Could you make no further loans? No more, sir. I tried everywhere. No one will trust us anymore. Mortimer, Mortimer, what will become of us? Think what the finest gentleman of his time is undergoing. It's enough to drive one mad. Have you nothing more you could sell, sir? My last snuff box. You would not have me dispose of that, Mortimer? 
paltry trifle that would bring nothing? No, there's nothing, Mortimer. Everything belongs to that wretched female creature who dignifies this hovel with the name of lodging. If only you would permit me to write to Mr. Vincent, sir. No. I've told you that neither Mariana nor Reginald must know. They're married. They're happy. Let them forget. Then the prince, sir. He's now in France, I hear. The prince is king. Have you forgotten? No, Mortimer. It's bad enough I've come to this level without having people know of it. We shall write to no one. Yes, sir. Ah, good morning. Good morning. Mortimer, it's our hostess, the landlady. Offer her a chair. I want no chair. Your Mortimer had better offer me some rent money, or out you go. I've warned you, Mr. Brummel. Your chair, madam. I'll stand. Then sit in it yourself, Mortimer. I cannot permit you to stand. You're tired. I'm so sorry, my dear madam, that I have nothing to offer you. The supplies for which Mortimer went out a short time ago have not yet arrived. Well, when they do, they'll not pass my door. I'll tell you that. Do, my dear madam, do help yourself. And speaking of helping yourself reminds me, would you mind returning some of my shirts? I'm sure you cannot wear them yourself. Mortimer? Yes, sir. How many were there in the wash last week? Uh, Twelve, sir. Yes, and now if you wouldn't mind returning... I'll do nothing of the sort. I'm sick of your fine manners. I want more of the money and less of the politeness. You mean, my dear madam, you want more of the politeness and less of the money? You pay me today or out into the street you go. Your polite talk may do good there. It may do for the stone, but it will not do for the flesh. Not for this flesh. Pauper. Mortimer. Yes, sir. What did she call me? Pauper, sir. Pauper? She's right. And that's what hurts. Mortimer. Yes, sir. My snuff box, please. There's no snuff in it, sir. My snuff box, please. And my brown coat. I'm going out for a walk. Snuffboxes are a drug on the market these days. I have 30 of them in my shop now. This one is rather special, of course. Uh, they are all of silver? It was given to me by the prince. Now George IV of England. I dare say that doubles or even triples its value. Monsieur, the donor is no concern of mine. I look only at the silver. This one is uh, good in that respect. Therefore, I can offer you a uh, hundred francs. One hundred? Let me have that snuff box, please. It's worth no more. Let me have it. Well, if you wish. I'm in business, monsieur. I have to eat. Fortunately, sir, I do not. Good day, sir. Good day. Well, sir, any luck, sir? Here. You may carry this home again, Mortimer. He wouldn't buy it. I would not sell it. A paltry hundred francs. A hundred francs, I... Oh, my... Mr. Brummel, sir, are you ill? Take my arm, sir. Lean on me. On the street, Mortimer? No, no, not on the street. I... Well, you're pale, sir. Your arm is trembling. Stand away, please. I can walk. Alone. I... I... Oh, Mr. Brummel, sir. Help here, help me. He's fainted. <laughs> Is he any better, Doctor? Very little. He's conscious now, but a little delirious, I think. Does he always ramble on that way about courts and ladies and fashions? At times, yes, sir. 
He thinks he's still... He was once a great gentleman, sir. Pity. There's nothing much more I can do for him. You mean that... You mean, sir... Yes. I'm sorry. Very sorry. Thank you, sir. If you should want me again, don't hesitate to call. Thank you. Mortimer. Oh, coming, sir. Coming. At once, Mr. Brown, sir. Yes, sir. Mortimer. That man, that man who's here just now, Mr. Sheridan? Uh, yes, it, it, it was, sir. Yes, I thought so. Mortimer. What do I hear? Carriage wheels. Someone else is arriving? Carriage wheels? Certainly, Mortimer. How do I look? Oh, very, very well, sir. Am I quite correct, Mortimer? Are there creases in my cravat? I should not wish to make creases the fashion. Oh, Mr. Brummel, sir, you're quite the fashion. Do your post, then. And ask the musicians to play. Please, sir, please. There are no... Mortimer. Is that someone at the door? Yes, sir. Then open it, man, open it. Yes, sir. Excuse me, sir. Mortimer. Oh, Miss Mariana. Where is he, Mortimer? Oh, Mr. Reginald, I'm so glad you could come. I came as soon as we had your letter. Is he still so ill, Mortimer? Very ill, sir, very ill. Why didn't he tell us? Why didn't you let us know sooner? He wouldn't permit it, Miss Mariana. He's pride. Take us to him. Uh, Yes, sir. But if he acts strangely, sir, please to pay no attention. He's... he's not himself, sir. Good evening. Mr. Brummel, you shouldn't be up, sir. Not up. Not up when I have guests to receive. But who is this? Mr. Brummel. Uncle Bo. Reginald. Mariana. Well, sit down, sit down. Some some wine, Mortimer. We must celebrate with wine. Wine, sir? Oh, I... I don't wish any. Nor I, Mortimer. Thank you, sir. Oh? Never mind, then. Mariana, let me look at you. I've never forgotten you, Mariana. Never. I've never forgotten you. Oh, how kind you were. Even in all the rush of my life. And I have been busy entertaining, you know. I've always remembered your pretty little face, my dear. And your laugh. Mr. Brummel, sir, will you sit down here, sir? Thank you. Thank you. Sit down, Reginald. You you must be tired after walking up all those steps. It, uh, it is high, sir. Yes, 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 but the air is so much purer. I'm expecting guests, Reginald. Mortimer, two more for dinner. Yes, Mr. Brummel. Mr. Brummel, you must come away from here, back to England, with us. Come away? But my engagements, my dear, my engagements, I... There's that bell again. No, don't go. You won't leave me, Mariana. You won't leave me, will you? No, we'll stay just as long as you like. Mortimer? The door. Yes, sir. Your Majesty. Mr. Brummel, please. Who is it, Mortimer? Mr. Brummel, sir. It's His Majesty, the King. Good evening, Bo. Your Majesty. Is it... Is it real? Yes, Bo. You, you must pardon me for not rising. I'm forgetting my manners. Stay seated, Bo. You've hidden from us long enough. If your servant hadn't sent the snuff box to me, I should never have known where you were. The snuff box? Oh, yes. I told you to send it to His Majesty Mortimer. Why, why, yes, sir. Oh, of course, I I remember now. My dear Bo, we don't mean to lose you again. We stop with you tonight, and tomorrow you dine with us in London. Dine? Dine? At what hour? At eight, Your Majesty, at eight. Yes. At eight o'clock, Bo. Eight? Mortimer, have I any other engagement? Uh, uh, No, oh, oh, no, sir. 
Then I shall have much pleasure, Your Majesty. Padma. Yes, sir. Padma. Yes, sir. Should anyone call, say I have a rather pressing engagement with, with His Majesty. I... No. No. His engagement, sir, with Her Majesty even higher than you, sir. Oh. conclude our play and bring you as themselves our bow and bell, Robert Montgomery and Madge Evans. I'm grateful, Mr. DeMille, for the chance you gave me tonight to enact the story of one of, one of society's most colorful characters. Old Brummel brought to a sort of climax a taste for fashion that gentlemen had cultivated for centuries. Sometimes a most peculiar taste. Back in Queen Elizabeth's time, for instance, it was the gentlemen who wore corsets. Even Sir Walter Raleigh. <laughs> And not long after, earrings and spangled gothers decorated the nobility. Pirates, too, were the paragon of foppery, decking themselves out in Utrecht velvet and Malene laces. Then I don't think women should, men should say a word about women today who spend a lot of time trying to make themselves look nice. Oh, I agree, Madge. The danger for a woman is spending too little time on her appearance rather than too much. And that's just as true about complexions as about clothes. Those of us in pictures realize probably better than most people the importance of clear, smooth skin. I'm sure that's the reason for the popularity of Lux Toilet Soap in Hollywood. We use it because we're just as fussy about complexions as Beau Brummel was about the cut of his waistcoat. It's been my favorite for a good long time. But, Bob, what do you have to say for yourself? When are you going back east to plant a few potatoes on that farm of yours? There'll have to be four potatoes, Madge, because I doubt if I'll get away until September. It must be quite a thrill to the people back there to have you as a neighbor. Well, I sort of doubt that, and I can prove it. One night last year, just before I was about to return to Hollywood, I drove over to say goodbye to my nearest neighbor, a couple of miles away. It was after nine o'clock, so he had to get out of bed and come down on the porch where I was waiting. I've known that man for several years. He's a great friend of mine and the best farmer I know. Well, we talked crops for a few minutes, then shook hands and said goodbye. I could tell he had something on his mind, but I'd walked way down to the gate before he called me back. I stepped up on the porch again. He looked all around to make sure that no one was eavesdropping, and then he said, I see, Mr. Montgomery, I hear you're an actor. <laughs> I don't know what you answered, Bob. <laughs> but if he's listening in tonight, he's learned that you're one of the best. And to you, Madge, and to you, Bob, our thanks for a very fine performance. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Robert Montgomery and Madge Evans. This is your announcer, ladies and gentlemen, Melville Ruick. Mr. DeMille returns to the microphone in just a moment. Our cast tonight included Ralph Kellard as Richard Binsley Sheridan, Doris Lloyd as Kathleen, Lou Merrill as Broker, Wallace Roberts as Simpson, Frederick Sewell as Lord Manley, John Lake as The Doctor, and Lillian Castle as Landlady. Mr. Montgomery and Miss Evans appeared through courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Studios, Mr. DeMille Paramount, and Lewis Silver's 20th Century Fox. And now, 
Our producer, Cecil B. DeMille. Every week since October 1934, the play has been the thing in the Lux Radio Theater. With the rise of the curtain each Monday evening, I have hoped that our labors of the week would bring you another hour of glamour and entertainment. In the Lux Radio Theater, 28 men and women work every day of the week. Writers adapt for our stage, the plays, the plays that you want to hear. Casting directors comb lists of talent. Securing the stars and supporting cast that will best fit the roles. Rehearsals are scheduled regularly. We work each week, not with the same cast and the same play, but with new people and new vehicles for every Monday night. In the past year alone, 1,072 parts have been enacted in the Lux Radio Theater. 52 plays have been produced. The figures showing the number of listeners to our program during the year are truly amazing. Adding together the audiences of the last 52 weeks, check-up show that we have had over 600 million listeners. Of course, this huge number is accounted for by the fact that millions of our listeners tune in loyally week after week. We've enjoyed presenting this theater this year of drama over the air tremendously. It's been a year of genuine pleasure to us, as we sincerely hope it has been for you. But frankly, ladies and gentlemen, the staff of our theater is weary. Our sound effect man, always a master of understatement, said, I do get tired once in a while. Our sponsors, being the kind of generous and cooperative people they are, readily agreed to a vacation period. So it has been decided that while so many of our audience are vacationing, we in the Lux Radio Theater, too, will have a holiday. Therefore, when the curtain rings down tonight, those behind the scenes will lay down their stage braces, and the script book will be closed for two months. Mr. Louis Silvers, our musical conductor, will put aside his baton and go as fast as he can to a favorite spot in Mexico. Our technicians, directors, and writers will all seek a change of scene. Personally, I'll remain in Hollywood, where I'm about to begin the filming of my new picture, The Buccaneer. So I, I hope for a little time at the ranch. Early in August, we all expect to be back in Hollywood making preparations for the new season. Already there are piles of manuscripts and lists of names, many of which we hope to put in lights on the marquee of the Lux Radio Theater beginning September 13th. There are people in Hollywood you want to hear. There are plays you want presented. I also know you'll join me in saying goodbye and good luck to all who've worked with me here in the Lux Radio Theater this season. I don't ask you to think of us during the summer, but I'd like to suggest that in September you be prepared to hear from us again. On the 13th of September, the lights of the Lux Radio Theater will flash on. Our curtain will rise on a new season, and we'll be at work with renewed vigor and purpose at the most pleasant task I know, producing entertainment for you. This is Cecil B. DeMille, wishing you a happy summer and saying good night to you from Hollywood. From 1937 and the Lux Radio Theater's presentation of Bo Brummel, starring the fine actor Robert Montgomery. A couple of notes here. I found the information about Amelia Earhart interesting as it kind of presents the feeling of the time. Um, you know, when I was studying history in college, 
It was it was my main like focus. One of the problems uh, that was discussed with archaeology is that it's difficult to understand how people felt uh, and their worldview, how their worldview was shaped by events in the past that we may just be rediscovering now. So you may you may dig up bones and pots and temples all day long, but to under, really understand the culture and the time period, it's kind of tough because you really don't know what's inside people's mind or how society works, you know, sometimes. And they, they have other ways to find that out. But, you know, when you can get, especially with audio, when you can get the audio version of what people were thinking and how people were feeling, um, that is, uh, that's special. And I think it's why great archaeological discoveries like, uh, the Rosetta Stone or the Tales of Gilgamesh are really that important understanding the past because you get to find out how people thought. Now, as for the story of Bo Brummel, this play was great for audio, but if you're looking for a really good movie version, can I suggest the 1954 version starring Stuart Granger, Elizabeth Taylor, and Peter Houstonoff? Magnifique. Just excellent. All right, thus, sadly, it concludes another episode of Shot and Shield. Uh, being that this is December, the December episode, I would like to thank each of you for joining me, and I wish you happiness and wonder as you celebrate the holidays at this time of year. Uh, my many thanks to Gurinder Singh Man for joining me once again to discuss his newest book, The Rise of the Sikh Soldier, The Sikh Warrior Through the Ages, 1700 to 1900, found on Hellion and Company Publishers, uh, their website, or wherever you get your books. Order it now. You won't be disappointed. If you are listening for the first time, please take a moment and join uh, either the Twitter feed at Shot Shield or on Facebook in the Shot Shield Podcast Wargaming Group. And please post your excellent work, miniatures, paintings, and builds to that page. Both the both Do that both on Twitter and in the Facebook group. There's some excellent experts that... Uh, that participate in the Twitter and the Facebook group uh, that could help you with any questions you have if I can't answer it. And trust me, I don't know the answers. They do. And if, and if not, then we're going to steal everything you post. <laughs> All your tremendous ideas are going to become ours. Uh, and, and you know what? Can I tell you? That's what I do mostly. I mostly let you put it all on there, and that way I can steal the idea. Um, I'm all about that. Anyway, all that's left to be said is that you've been listening in Mason, Wisconsin, Ankara, Turkey, and in Bengaluru, India, to the Shot and Shield Supercast, the show dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming and history, a podcast meant to be heard while you're painting and working on your amazing projects. I am Lord Scott from the Duchy of Florida. I'm out. This has been a production of the Experience 13 Podcast Network. 13! Your electricity.